Now, as a warm-up for you, I have a kiss, marry, kill option. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Kiss, marry, kill. Superman, old school, regular Superman. Electric blue Superman or Superman from the 853rd century. Ooh, okay. So, uh, well, they're all handsome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very secure in my masculinity <laughs> that I can answer this question and not feel like uh, oh. I'm... <clears throat> Like I have to be uh, weird about it. Uh, I would kiss the 853rd century Superman. I would marry a regular Superman. Uh Uh And because the only other option is kill. And I, I see, here's the thing. I don't think, with him existing in a world where the head net has everything in your in your brain and he's got all these advanced powers and you know we're just from two different centuries i don't think marrying that superman would be a good idea but maybe making out with him you know mm-hmm. why not mm-hmm. uh i'm sure in the future that's not even an issue i'm sure there you know pansexuality is like a thing um and i i could never marry uh electric blue superman because he's made of energy mm. Uh, and he returns to a human form, so he's easy to kill. And uh, you got to marry regular Superman. I mean, he's dependable. Sure, he's been Lois for all these years. Yeah. They got a kid, so 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 yeah. There you go. You know, you you did a wonderful job. I play this game with Don, and I always have masculine people. <laughs> I always play it with men, um, and he just he putters around. It takes him a really long time, and uh, so I applaud you for being reasonable. And also very decisive. Well, yeah, that's me. (laughs) Reasonable and decisive. There you go. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Dream come true for you and me 
so there's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day there's a great big beautiful tomorrow just a dream away ah oh, well salwete i'm your host stella and this is Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 154 for February MMXVIII. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by Overlooked Dark Night. The Long Halloween. Hush. Dark Knight Returns. The Killing Joke. These are all Batman stories that have been talked about and talked about countless times over the years. They are considered classics, and in most cases, that title is fitting. The thing is, Batman is nearly eight decades old, and whilst those stories are worth talking about, there are plenty of other Bat comics that are being a tad... overlooked. And that's where we come in. Hi everybody, my name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Andrew Leyland. Andy and I decided that it was a crime that there were so many great Batman stories out there that weren't getting their due. To that end, we started a show, The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show. Our goal is to talk about the previously mentioned Overlooked stories and tell you why they're worth your time. The show comes out twice a month, with the first episode focusing on the back books from the late 70s and early 80s. We're starting with the Len Wein run and working our way forward through the books written by Jerry Conway and eventually Doug Mensch. On the second episode of the month, we'll dig into the various adventure comics that were based on the Fox Kids slash Kids WB Batman animated shows because they're really good and hardly anyone seems to remember that they exist. The show can be found at the Fortress of Bailitude podcasting network, which is located at www.fortressofbailitude.com. The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Shining a bat signal on the bat stories that no one seems to remember or care about. Because somebody has to. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts, hashtag TBU family. And finally, you can support the Batman Universe, and by extension, of course, Backroll the Oracle, and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to thebatmanuniverse.net. Well, my guest this month, this is kind of funny because he had signed up for this particular story I'd say at least a year ago or so. I don't know if it was during Genesis, but it was a while ago. I remember he said, I would like to do a DC 1 million. So he had been on my Excel worksheet, and it was one of those things where I just thought, hmm, I wonder if I'll ever get to that, but here we are. He's someone that I really enjoy talking to, and it, it happens so infrequently that it makes each visit that much more special. Please welcome back Michael Bailey. Yes, I am like Grunkle Stan's brother. <laughs> <sighs> and, I, and I say only that because I know that you dressed like Mabel today, I and it was adorable. I absolutely did. 
Yes. <laughs> but thank you for having me on. This is, uh, I, I always consider this kind of the consolation prize for uh, doing Genesis with you. <laughs> so. Uh, is but, it? Uh, or is it a reward for doing Genesis? I, I, I'm good either way. A reward works just as well for me as a, as, as a consolation prize, actually. Oh, boy. I can't wait to talk about this particular story because I think all I knew about it was from you. So I'd gone in with sort of higher expectations. So I can't wait to talk about it with someone with you in particular. Oh, that, that's always that's always concerning. <laughs> you, you recommended this and I had high expectations well, and I will never forget yeah. you usually follows that. So. I mean, there are certain people that will recommend things to you and you'll be like, well... It's from this source is coming from, so I'm a little cautious about it. But I was going in thinking, okay, I think this might be good. So we'll see. <laughs> I do want to talk to you about the Justice League movie because I think when it came out, I knew right away that we were going to be doing this episode, and I thought I really want to talk about the Justice League movie. And it's gotten some, you know, negative <laughs> comments about it, which I guess is the state of the DC Universe film. But I think you and I are alike in the fact that, number one, we both liked Man of Steel, and number two, we both enjoy Justice League. Well, yeah, it, it, it you know, it's kind of interesting because I wasn't excited for the movie until about a week or two before it came out uh, because I got burned by Batman v. Dumpster Fire. Mm. And I just, there is a, there's audio that I will be hopefully editing this month and releasing with uh, Donovan Grant and I talking about <laughs> our feelings about that film. Uh, uh. Which was appropriate because we actually saw it together. Uh-huh. Uh, that's the, the, the day I got to meet Donovan Grant. Oh. So, and now I've met you and Bertoni, so, you know, the trinity is complete. There we go. But I, I wasn't really looking forward to it. There just seemed to be the movies seem to be taking this track that just I just wasn't down with. Mm-hmm. And about a week before the movie came out, I realized there's a Justice League movie coming out, and this is kind of exciting mm-hmm. and big, and you know this is significant. So we went to see it, and we had to go to a later showing than we originally bought because the theater had those you know like reserve seating things. Oh, and the chart yep. on the website lies. Oh. So instead of being all the way in the back, we were all the way in the front, which wasn't going to work. Because uh, <laughs> Rachel gets motion sick watching movies sometimes. Mm-hmm. So sitting in the very front is not a good mm-hmm. idea. But we finally saw it, and I just had like a grin on my face throughout the entire film. Like from from the moment it began with those kids talking to Superman, and Henry Cavill just carrying himself like I want to see Superman on the screen to Batman not being a jerk to Cyborg actually being interesting. Mm -hmm. I was kind of afraid of that to Mm -hmm. Flash. Well, Flash was just what I thought he was going to be. It was my least favorite part of the film Mm -hmm. Um, to how everything played out and with the villain and getting kind of deeper into the DC universe and seeing like a green lantern on the big screen. That's not Ryan Reynolds. And, you know, just that whole ending sequence where Superman actually gets to be Superman or the Superman I want to see Mm -hmm. for the first time. I just loved, I I loved the film. Uh, You know, I have one or one or two, of course, minor nitpicks with it, but overall I just walked out of that theater on cloud nine. 
You know, I, I disagree with you about this one thing, and it's that... Well, I do... I, I guess I do slightly agree with you about Flash, but Cyborg was a bit of a dud for me. He gets okay. better, I think, like halfway and on, but he's just like... And maybe that's just how he's supposed to be, like more machine than actual human, but he was just like very boring in how he was talking. I thought, what is going on? But then it does. he starts to liven up once the team is made. Yeah, I'm not too big of a fan of Ezra Miller, and uh, The Flash was, like, slightly annoying, but I could still take him, and uh, overall, yeah, I really liked it. The mustache thing. Could you really see the mustache thing? This sort of annoyed me. I yelled at Don and Josh because I saw it with them, and I just feel like it's one of those things that people can nitpick because they want to nitpick. But really, I mean, why are you looking for a mustache? I didn't think it was noticeable. I couldn't even, I don't even know where it was supposed to appear but what were your thoughts on this digital mustache i I didn't care (laughs) uh i have a feeling that if they hadn't told us any of that we wouldn't have noticed at all in fact the one image that everyone keeps pulling up saying that it was digitally removed is not a scene where it was digitally removed Mm, okay so it's like one of those things now that first sequence where he's talking to the kids uh apparently it was there okay but that's obviously uh, I don't see Zack Snyder starting his his, his Justice League film uh, like that. I think I think it would have started like the opening credits did with a really depressing uh, cover of a Leonard Cohen uh, song, <laughs> uh, showing how the world is kind of you know up the creek because Superman's not here. You know, here's the thing. You know, we. I'm going to sound like an old man for a second, so let me go get my lawn. Okay. So I can eventually start <laughs> yelling at kids belt? to get off. And my, <laughs> which was the style at the time, <laughs> of course. Uh, but I think that the way social media has evolved is that people feel like they have to express their opinions, mm-hmm. and because news outlets and entertainment companies use social media to promote their product, and websites use social media to try to get clicks back to their sites so that they'll increase their ad revenue and thus make more money. I think, quote-unquote, news sites, because they're really more of hype sites, make a big deal out of something, and then we start arguing it on on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, I don't know if you can argue on Instagram. I'm not, I'm not on it there, so I'm not quite sure how it works. Uh, I, I just thought it was just pictures, but mm-hmm. maybe I'm wrong about that. And, and, you know, like all these things where people will will just start to natter at each other over every little thing. And I think if you have a certain friends list or you have certain people you follow on Twitter and you're seeing the same thing over and over again, it's it's what I call the message board effect, where back in the day when message boards were were big uh, in the comic book community, people would have opinions. And because the five other people that are on the message board with them share that, everyone feels that way. So then you start seeing everyone agree with you. So you think that everyone agrees, uh, feels that way. Anybody who didn't know about the digital removal probably didn't notice and didn't care. And I have a feeling that only the the, the people that really want to nitpick everything anyways are the ones that are going to care about it because mm. it really wasn't distracting to me at all yeah. i didn't even really i mean i was looking at the screen and wondering well is it there well it's probably not there but at the end of the day it didn't detract or add to anything to the film for me mm-hmm. 
I agree. You know, I was engrossed in the film. I very much enjoyed it. I think that, in my opinion, I feel like they took Justice League, well, they took Batman versus Superman, or as you call it, Superman versus Dumpster Fire. And, or did you do the opposite, Batman versus Dumpster Fire? Batman v. Dumpster Fire. Okay. Uh, I think they took that, took their mistakes, and fixed them because, you know, Justice League had. I would say a markedly different tone. I mean, there's more humor, but the humor wasn't out of place. Like I sometimes feel with the Iron Man films and uh, you know, one of my favorite scenes was Bruce fighting. Well, really Superman fighting Bruce. And then he's down on the ground. He's like, yeah, there's, I think that's going to bleed or I'm bleeding or that's broken. Something <laughs> yeah. like that. So, I mean, just like little moments. And I thought, I, I feel like this is much better. What did you think about the villain? Because most people thought that dark side was going to be the villain, but here we actually have sort of the herald of dark side being the big bad in the film. I am a mark for the fourth world characters. Uh, that goes back to me being a kid and collecting the superpowers toys and the first Christmas where I got a bunch of them, dark side and Calabac and Desaad. Mm. Uh, were, were the toys I played with as a kid. And I, I, I've come to the conclusion that if I had the toy as a kid, it's a character that I've continued to love as an adult. Uh, and as I kind of get deeper into reading the original stuff, I just think it's, it's just, uh, you know, I think Rob Kelly once said it, uh, if you wanted to pitch a new God series, it's Game of Thrones in space, mm. probably with less nudity, hopefully. <laughs> And because of that, and, and this was one of the things about the film that I think made me enjoy it more than maybe some other people is that I am so in love with the DC universe that I was just happy that Steppenwolf was even being referenced. Sure, yeah. And, yeah, he was a bland-looking CGI creation at times. Uh, I rather liked the voice of the character. I think the actor playing it did a really good job with that. And I thought he provided that kind of... You know, I'm the big bad, I'm collecting my three whatevers, and now you have to come stop me before <clears throat> I conquer the world. So seeing all of that really made me happy, but I'm, like I was saying, I'm more plugged into DC Minutia, mm -hmm. so maybe, and, and, and I have a feeling I was doing this throughout the entire film, I think I was filling things into the film that weren't really expressly said in the movie. And that made the movie more enjoyable to me. Like all of the like there, this is a very fast paced film. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's less than two hours long, and unlike Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, there wasn't a lot of navel gazing. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of characters just kind of lost in some existential crisis. You know, we we were, you know, it's like Batman, Wonder Woman, Cyborg, Flash, blah, blah, bam, bam. Everything's, you know, just hitting at you at once. And I think because of all the stuff that I'd read before the film and all the stuff I remembered from the previous movie, I was filling in gaps that might have been there for other people. But that really doesn't matter because it's my opinion of the film and, you know, uh, just on the basis of liking or, or loving something or hating it, 
I loved it. My one problem with the movie, my one big overarching one, which oddly enough, I didn't think I would have is when they announced they were going to do man of steel and then Batman V Superman. And then, you know, wonder woman and justice league, there was kind of an outcry saying, why aren't you setting up these other characters in their own films? Like Marvel did. Mm, Yeah. And, at first, my opinion of that was, well, you really don't need to. I mean, the Super Friends were on the air for 10 years and then in syndication. Justice League was a pretty big cartoon in the oh, early yeah. 2000s. Uh, the Batman animated series itself has been, you know, was popular th- in the Superman series was popular through the 90s. So I, I just felt like, you know, like people know who Superman and Batman and all that are. But there was a lot of ways the characters related to each other that I didn't think were earned. Like when, when you get to Avengers and you see Cap and Iron Man and Thor, the way they relate to each other throughout the course of the film, the camaraderie they have by the end feels like it was an organic part of the story. Mm. And, and you kind of needed an Iron Man movie before Avengers because no one knew who Iron Man was. (laughs) I mean, comic book fans knew who Iron Man was, and people that watched that terrible cartoon from the 90s knew who Iron Man was. (laughs) I remember that. He had a mullet in that, didn't he? Yes, he did. (laughs) And, you know, people know who Captain America is, but you kind of needed a movie. People didn't know who Thor was, except for the very awesome Incredible Hulk Returns television movie, which I will always love and defend. You know, so you kind of needed set-up films because no one knew who they were, and by the time you got to that film, you're kind of invested in them as characters. And by the end of Avengers, it's a universe now, and they're all friends on a certain level. So at the end of the film, when it's a great scene where Bruce reveals that he bought the Kent farm back, uh, and he's given it back to Martha, and Clark and Bruce are kind of like having banter back and forth. It felt right to me. Mm-hmm. Because that's how I want to see those characters act together. But I don't think, based on how the previous film went, <laughs> that they would really be at that point yet. Yeah. I think they need to have coffee a few more times sure. before they're bannering back and forth. And by the way, Bruce, you saved his mother in Batman v Superman. You know she exists. I know you got a lot on your plate. Why did you let her farm get foreclosed on in the first place, you yeah. jerk? God, that bugged me until the very end. <laughs> so I, I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of the 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 character interaction and the way they related to each other, outside of Batman and Diana, really wasn't as earned as it could have been. Mm-hmm. And I am kind of tired of this DC notion of DC film notion. That we have to see everything from pre-year one standards. Like, the, the, you know, when they did Man of Steel, they set up Superman, but Clark Kent wasn't at the Daily Planet until the very end of the film. Batman was an established hero in Batman v Superman, and we see Wonder Woman, but we know that there's this whole backstory with her, but we're going to get that later. Mm-hmm. Cyborg and the Flash and Aquaman, this is before they're even Flash, Cyborg, and Aquaman. You know, this this is before they put on costumes and have their kind of superhero adventures. 
And I really, and at the end, it seemed like, okay, now we're back where we need to be, and they're all where they need to be, and ooh, there's a shirt rip, which I loved, by the way. (laughs) Um, Gosh, I nearly stood up and cheered. Uh, There were tears in my eyes, swear to God. And, you know, you had that thing at the end with the Flash and Superman racing, which I thought was funny. Yes. Uh, And then you had Lex and Deathstroke together. But now Lex is like there, there's this whole thing with Lex that we never saw where now he's Gene Hackman, uh, you know, wearing a jaunty outfit and uh, getting Flash Thompson to be Deathstroke for him. Yeah, he's grown so much. I mean, he was also on Magic Mike, uh, which I've never seen because uh, I don't see biographies of me. Of you? Oh, I had no yeah. idea here. I thought it was a semi-biography of um that man that now has Channing Tatum. Tatum but now I know the it's block you. of wood now I know it's you <laughs> I had no idea yeah they, they took some liberties with my backstory I see. Uh, but no but overall though I really thought that it was a fun movie there having the Elfman Batman theme in there did a lot for me mm-hmm. it was really weird seeing Ben Affleck against the Ben the the, the Elfman Batman theme but you know, never mind. The fact that we got a little bit of the Superman, the John Williams Superman theme, did a whole lot for me. Mm. I, I, I really need to see it again because I think the sound system in the theater I was with was a little off oh, okay. because I didn't hear the music as well as I wanted to when he walks up and says, Well, you know, I'm into truth, but I'm also into justice. And then he lays the smack down on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Superman was the man at the end of this film. Sure, Everything yeah. he did was awesome. Yeah, it really absolutely. was. Yeah. <laughs> like, they wouldn't have won if he didn't show up. And then there's one of my favorite scenes is Flash saves the family in the truck. Mm. And he's feeling all self-satisfied. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, I did that. And he looks over and there's Superman carrying a building full of people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. We killed half the people in the building. Uh, just let me have my moment. What, you think you had time to warn everybody? Hey, everybody, get on your ball. Mayday, get in here. <laughs> Man. Um, the hostility in this family. And I liked that Henry Cavill got to play the Superman I think he's wanted to play from the very beginning. Lighter tone. A lot. No, just here's the thing about Superman: is Superman knows what he can do, and and I forget who I was reading this from. It may have been from like this proposal that Mark Wade and Grant Morrison and Tom Pyre and Mark Millar or Miller did in the 2000s, where they were talking about who Superman was as a character during their proposal that never that was eventually rejected by DC is that at the end of the day, Superman knows that he is invulnerable. And because of that, he is completely at ease at all times because he knows no one can hurt him. Mm -hmm. And because he's at ease, it puts you at ease. You know, Mm -hmm. he is just someone who exudes this to me. He is someone that exudes an aura that you just feel good being around him. Like when he shows up, you know, everything's going to be okay. And what we got in Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, and you and we can, I'm not going to argue the merits of the version they did, 
because then we're getting into artistic and you know artistic and writing stuff that I sure. don't think we have time for. But because they made him so mopey and so like, well, I guess I gotta be Superman now, or well, they don't like me anymore. People blew up around me, you know. Here he's smiling, he's cracking jokes. When he said, "Yep, feel dead again," I laughed. I was just like, "Cause that's how he would be." And I also like that we didn't take five hours to get him into action. You know, <laughs> like he's back. He and Lois have their conversation, and then he's helping the Justice League. Right. Boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. I, I, I appreciated that too. Yeah. What wonderful things you had to say. I totally agree with all of that. Do you do you ship? This is probably the most important question, really. Do you ship Batman and Wonder Woman? Absolutely, since Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. <laughs> when he was turned into a little pig. Yeah, when she was turned. No, I mean even before that. There's a. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I think it was the kid stuff. Was it? Oh, I guess that the bad. Star Frost. There was an episode where. Oh, they pair they, off. They, you're right. I think you're right. Or they paired off, yeah. and and he was like, di- he like injured himself trying to save her. Yeah. And she sees his hands, and he hides them like a little kid. Yes. You know, I I I think that because of their upbringing and everything, they they would they're a natural pair for each other. Mm-hmm. I I like the idea of Wonder Woman and Batman being together. Uh, it just makes sense. It makes so much more sense to me than Superman and Wonder Woman. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, that that I I, I don't know. I, I, I do not ship one. Arthur and Diana though. Just just saying that that happened in Flashpoint, right? Or the uh, idea yes, was that they did. the idea was there, and really, when you think about it, you know, they're both of royal stature, mm-hmm. so maybe that kind of works. But I, 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 especially in that film, I I, I liked Aquaman because he wasn't. I knew he wasn't quite Aquaman yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that scene that uh, they did in the, the, the first New 52 Justice League uh, storyline where Green Lantern at one point was accidentally holding Wonder Woman's lasso. Oh, uh, and, yes, yes. And he started, like, spilling his guts. Correct. And, but apparently there was a story that I had forgotten about where in, in the 90s where, where it was Aquaman doing that. I thought that was funny. But I just, I just think he's, he's, he's cool. But he's, he's a little bit of a bro. Like not as much. He's not like frat boy Aquaman like on Smallville. Mm-hmm. But he, he's. I just, I don't ship them at all. Gotcha. So. Well, hopefully you ship Arthur and Mira. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's what I would hope. Now this might be a tough conversation. You might want to wait until your own show. But I, I was texting Don, and he was jealous that you and I were talking because he really wants to know your thoughts on the Bendis announcement. Would you like to say anything about that? You don't have to go into too much detail because I'm sure you'd like to save it for your own Superman show. But any thoughts about Bendis taking it over? It's kind of funny that you that you say that because probably before this comes out, I will have had uh, – I'm, I'm, I'm planning this weekend since I have off this weekend. I was going to get in front of the microphone for a little bit and talk about the Red Trunks – Returning yes. and Bendis. Um, short version mm-hmm. is I am very excited. That's great. I am extremely excited. I'm a little disappointed 
that Jurgens is not going to be writing the character anymore because I really think he and Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason righted that ship from the really terrible waters DC had put it in. Mm. And they have, for almost two years now, delivered four times a month Superman books I want to read. Like, I look forward to them. I can't wait to get to them, especially the Jurgens title. And after they did Superman Reborn and they kind of got everything sorted out, I was just, like, completely on board because finally you have a Superman that feels like Superman. And it's it's funny. that The, the one thing I will say, and this is kind of a tease in case uh, anybody hasn't listened to what I'm going to be putting out before this comes out, but I haven't recorded it yet. <laughs> been watching a lot of Doctor Who lately. Who's that? <laughs> exactly. He's the Doctor. There, Shag. I said it. Are you happy? Because I know Shag's listening. Hopefully not as we're recording, but later when you release cre- it. Yeah, he's like heavy breathing in the other line right <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> the... Uh... I'm sorry, now I'm thinking of Shaq, like sitting in his, in his home with his earphones are trying not to be trying to be quiet. I completely lost what I was saying, too, because we got distracted. Damn you, Shag. Um, it was about when you get in front of the mic. Oh, um, the point found it. <laughs> uh, the point is that I think the lesson DC has learned is they took five years and slowly kind of stripped everything away from Superman that may, that was part of his world, uh, you know, up where they walk and, and run. And uh, I hear they also play all day in the sun. Mm. Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free. Wish I could be part of that world. I almost started singing. That would have been probably not good right now. They took away everything. It's like, you know, okay, he's not with Lois anymore. So we take that away. He's not at the Daily Planet anymore, but then he's back at the Daily Planet. But as soon as he's back at the Daily Planet, we're going to take his secret identity away and Perry's going to hate him and he's not going to have all of his powers, but then he's going to have his powers back, but his life is complete. Like they did all, They then we're going to make him younger and we're going to do this, that, and the other. And oddly enough, the Superman that's been the most successful for them is the one that's older, married, has a kid, and just is very confident. So yeah. I, I just, I just find that, a, I just find that very amusing. Yeah. Now I don't uh, really read Superman, which I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I was reading a lot of Bendis stuff just because he happened to be on books that I was reading with the X-Men stuff, and I just think he did really wonderful things. And, you know, I know Ultimate Spider-Man is well-loved by many, and I've read several issues of that. So I feel like he's a man that certainly Superman fans can trust. And in the article, that the, the Forbes article that came out the day we're recording this, he said everything right. Like everything he talked about in terms of Superman was just like, yep, yep, uh-huh, agree with that. Yep, that sounds great, cool, awesome, okay. I, oh, oh, you're going to do a six-issue miniseries, and then you're going to be writing action in Superman? Great, you're the John Byrne of this century. Because <laughs> uh, that's, that's exactly what happened with John Byrne. No, I'm excited. I'm very I – am, I'm a little sad that what I liked 
is going away. But for the first time, it seems like what I liked is going away, but it's being replaced by something else that I'm going to like. Okay. I'm glad to hear it. Well, final topic of discussion as before we move on to the main event is, of course, our good friend, Shag. As I call him, Shagalicious. Is there anything you would like to air right now, your dirty laundry, in regards to him? Any any grievances? I, I'm going to put this on record. <laughs> okay. Just because of a conversation that he and I were part of uh, in a Facebook chat. Uh, if he at any point tells you okay. that I want to cover Amazon's attack, <laughs> you are to immediately call him a liar. <laughs> He's already tried it once more. He said that you would like to cover Joker's Last Laugh with me. Well, actually, okay, so for once, he's kind of telling the truth. <laughs> oh, okay. But uh, That's an, It's an interesting story. I'd like to revisit it because it, okay. it, 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 it operates in a very we- weird place in the DC universe. Okay. Well, I don't think Babs is in Amazon's attack. Which is odd because you think the Birds of Prey would be part of that. Sure, yeah. So I guess we can skip and I'll be safe. And you'll be safe. But, but my point is, if he tells you that, uh-huh. Just he's go- lying. Okay. Yeah, I guess I am gullible. And I am going to reveal now uh-huh. Shag's first name. <gasps> he keeps it secret. Now, this may or may not be true. Oh, my. So I, I want everyone to realize that what I'm about to say could be a lie. Okay. But his name is Horatio. Oh, I've always uh, wondered. Like Horatio Wormblower. No, more like Horatio. He he was the inspiration for the CSI character, CSI Miami character oh, played by David. Oh, so, okay. So and 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 all, all because one of the producers saw uh, Shag constantly putting on and taking off his sunglasses. I see. Uh, and they're like, "What's your name?" And he he didn't say Shag. He said Horatio. I see. So I just wanted to make him sweat there, <laughs> see if I was really going to do it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I think one time I threatened to say something. He's like, please don't, um, even though I was kidding. But he's serious about keeping that under wraps. Mm-hmm. I only – the only reason I know is I stumbled upon it. Oh, okay. Uh, he didn't tell me, but Dragon Con puts your name on your badge. Oh, okay. And you were – this was – this is like 2007, 2008 – and we were in the dealer's room talking and hanging out, looking through some stuff. And I looked down and I went, oh. And he's just like, don't tell anybody. And I'm like, don't <laughs> tell anybody, Horatio. Oh, it's okay. goodness. Yeah. Well, now the whole world knows. All one million of the listeners of this episode. <laughs> oh, well. Well, I let's transition right there because I said one million. And yes, friends, we are going to be reviewing the 1998 DC Comics crossover event, DC 1 Million. And as I mentioned before, Michael really wanted to be on this show. I mean, he booked it in advance. Mm-hmm. And so I would like to know your history of this and uh, why it is so beloved. I guess why you love it so much without giving away, you know, story details and things like that. But what's your history with this story? Uh, I bought it when it came out. I really started diving into the deep end of the DC universe in 1994 with Zero Hour. And that's when I started buying the Flash title and and Green Lantern. I'd I'd actually been picking up Green Lantern for a few months before that because I came in right when Kyle Rayner did. And I was uh, off and on through the 90s. I would buy the Batman books. And that's why I kind of refer to like 1994 
to about 2002 as my, you know, everyone says, you know, that was my golden age of comics. Well, this is my silver age because it was kind of like the second age and it was where everything was just exciting and new, much like the love boat. (laughs) And by 1998, I was buying all of the Superman titles, all of the Batman titles, Aquaman, Flash, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Martian Manhunter started up with here, and I and I have that entire series, or I bought that entire. In fact, I had a couple letters printed in Martian Manhunter, and I was completely and utterly in love with Grant Morrison's JLA run. So this was like I was plugged into contemporary DC universe. So when this came up. And it was a year after Genesis, which, as we talked about, I did not care for. Mm-hmm. I was a little nervous, but at the time, when I reread it a couple of years ago, when I reread it this past week, it it's just such a it was just such a fun story. It was a great month because this came out weekly. It was a great month to be collecting. I was wanting to get to the shop every – I was getting to the shop every week at, the, at that time. But it was just like every week I had a new pile of the main DC One Million book and then all of the all of the tie-ins. And I, it, it just made me feel all warm and fuzzy. Uh, too bad the next year the crossover was Day of Judgment, uh, which I have mixed feelings on. <laughs> But no, DC One Million was one of those events that I was just really happy to be there for. Mm. Did you? So you bought all the tie-ins? I bought most of the tie-ins. I was like, if something kind of piqued my interest, I would get it. In fact, that was my first issue of Starman. Oh, because I wasn't reading Starman at the time. But I picked up that tie-in, and I and I picked up like the Resurrection Man tie-in. And a couple of, like the Power of Shazam tie-in I bought too. I, I, I eventually owned all of the tie-ins, but I have not sat down and read all of them. But, you know, when, when you're thinking of five Superman titles, f- three regular su- Batman titles, Robin, Catwoman, Young Justice, Superboy, Supergirl, which was weird. Oh, yeah, it was. Uh, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Wonder Woman. I mean, it's just like that... <laughs> That's a good chunk of them to begin with. So I wasn't complete, but I wasn't very far off. There are a lot of them, and I'll talk about that once we get to the tie-ins. But I actually should have done research to see if how it compares with other events, because I feel like that's the most tie-ins I have ever seen. That's, a, that's actually a really good question, because, you know, DC really didn't start, like, having all of all of their books tied in to their events legends which was the second one after crisis or the first one after crisis legends had a smattering of crossovers there was 22 i believe in that i'm trying to remember the chapters but once you got to millennium you were pretty much uh yeah you had to, <laughs> you had to be in this crossover uh, if you really wanted to be in the crossover, I think overall it is comparable starting at zero hour and going to Joker's last laugh. Okay. 
I think it, you know, you know, like some may have like one or two extra, but with those crossovers, it was like all of the titles were connecting with it. If you go, uh, if your listeners want to go to, uh, Mike's amazing world.com or DC indexes.com. One of his sections of his in the under guides is crossovers. And he's got basically a listing of all the crossovers and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So counting the DC 1 million on uh, like the, the four issues of that, there were 40 comics to read as part of this crossover. And that is comparable. Let's let's compare that to Genesis. Uh, it's actually more than Genesis okay. by a very wide margin. Okay. Actually, everything I just said was a lie. <laughs> uh, some of them had more than others, okay. but DC One Million uh, had that would be what thirty six cross. Good lord, man! I'm telling you, they were uh, they were wanting you to buy some comics that Absolutely. month, weren't they? And you have them. I'm glad all they right don't do now, that don't anymore. You? Right now in your omnibus? Uh, Yes, they're all there, plus the 80-page giant that came out later. Um, It's a thick book. This is very heavy. I, at one point at my work, where I currently work, there was a program that if the department you worked in did well and exceeded the budget that you were were given, you were basically given points to an Amazon-type shopping place. Uh, sometimes when companies do this, they like say, Hey, go here. And it's like, you could buy a keychain, and who cares? But, uh, I was working in the copy and print department at the time. We were constantly exceeding our budget. I was constantly getting hundreds of points and this place sold graphic novels. Mm. So for a few months I saved up my points and I got the DC 1 million omnibus, uh, which I need a spotter to, to get in here. So, uh, <laughs> But it's a beautiful book, and I'm so glad I own it. I just love this series. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for being willing. (laughs) Should we get into it then? To let people know? Share the love with those people who might not be aware. I want to – let me confess. You might be ashamed of me. But I don't think I really would have ever heard of this, with the exception of Barbara Gordon and you. So this is like a very new experience of me. Yeah, that and Zero Hour, there are just some things that were not on my radar at all. I think there are some crossovers that absolutely – well, also Genesis, but I blame that on Shagalicious. But, I mean, there are some things that have to be, I think, you know, Nightfall, The Crises. But this one, I was just like, this is a new experience for me. So thank you for giving me this new experience. No, oh, I'm, I'm glad you read it and didn't immediately <laughs> never want to speak to me again. So appreciate that too. This was a f- uh, the the main part of Justice League uh, of DC One Million uh, was a four issue mini series that was released weekly. Uh, the month this was released, it was uh, a five week month. So there is a if you see just like the trade paperback of DC One Million, it's the four issues and the JLA issue. Uh, which kind of rounds it out to you know more of a trade paperback sized thing. Uh, the reason why it's called DC One Million is the overarching concept is going from Action Comics number one and forward. When would Action Comics hit one million? And they basically decided, not foreseeing anything with the New Fifty Two, 
uh, etc., that it would be in the 853rd century. So for a month, all of the DC books that were part of this were numbered 1 million. So you had Superman 1 million, Superman the Man of Steel 1 million, Batman 1 million. And inside all of those, those books, uh, it is presented that you're seeing, having a, in your hands a special physical copy of this book uh, to make it a replica at like the comics that were published in the 20th century. Uh, I wonder how that plays with the digital copies you get on uh, Comixology. Yeah. <laughs> that actually kind of makes me laugh now that I think about it, that they had it for print media and now they have it available digitally on sale as we, as we speak. And then you read that and it says you have a physical copy, but you don't. But anyways, the four issues were written by Grant Morrison, who was writing the JLA at the time. And this was a very JLA centric event. Val, I'm going to say Samiks, not exactly sure how to pronounce his last name, uh, was the penciler, penciler Prentice Rollins, was the inker. Uh, I was very uh, interested to see that Tony Bedard was the associate editor. Uh, Dan As- Raspler was the editor, and uh, Tom Panarese is going to laugh when I say that Pat Garrahy was the colorist, because Pat Garrahy was the editor on a very unpopular run of New Titans. Uh, in fact, Marv Wolfman will not even say his name. Wow. So I, I just worked up a quick uh, kind of overall synopsis. Uh, synopsizing Grant Morrison stories are difficult. Uh, because he p- packs a lot of uh, wham into that gram, so to speak. And because of that, I didn't want to get lost in the weeds too much with a synopsis. I figure we could talk about little things here and there. Our story begins with a celebration. Visitors from the 853rd century bring glad tidings of the return of the original Superman. Apparently, Superman Prime has been kicking back in the sun for a few centuries, and now he's coming out. To celebrate this, the premier superhero group of the solar system, Justice Legion A, or Justice Legion Alpha, uh, which is made up of future versions of Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Flash, Starman, and Wonder Woman, have journeyed to the past to invite their predecessors to come to the future and participate in the festivities. The JLA is unsure, but the future heroes assure them that they will be only gone a few moments because time travel. Present-day Superman and company agree and are transported to the future, but because this is a big-time crossover, things go pear-shaped from there. One of the members of the Justice Legion betrays betrays the rest of the team. Solaris, a future villain of Superman that supposedly turned good, went bad again and snuck a virus that first infects our man, or the future our man, and then spreads to the rest of humanity. Complicating matters is Vandal Savage, the immortal Neanderthal who is trying to buy some black market rocket red suits to use as nuclear weapons. The Titans try to stop him, but he defeats them easily and puts them into the rocket red suits so they can die along with everyone else when the suits explode over his chosen target. The first suit is launched, but the Solaris virus screws things up, and instead of blowing up over Washington, D.C., the suit explodes over Montevideo, I'm going to screw that up, <laughs> the capital of Uruguay. Things go from bad to worse as the Solaris virus spreads over the globe, making everyone paranoid and eventually violent. 
At first, the people of Earth blame the Justice Legion, which hampers their efforts to end the madness. They come into conflict with the remaining heroes, who eventually calm down long enough, mainly thanks to Martian Manhunter, to assist the Legion in their efforts to stop the virus and get back to their own time to stop Solaris. The future Superman and Steel form a plan, and it's not a good one. The only being with enough processing speed to overcome the virus is... Solaris. So through a complicated process that also involves the DNA of Lois Lane, I will refer to this as Chekhov's DNA, they manage to build the the future evil son and bring him online. The virus is destroyed, and through sheer Superman awesomeness, the Justice Legion returns to their time, just as Solaris and the future Vandal Savage launch their final gambit to kill Superman Prime. Their plan was to have the future Starman plant some kryptonite on Mars so that in the 853rd century, Solaris could launch it into the sun, killing Superman Prime. Future Starman has a change of heart and turns on Solaris, giving his life in the process. Solaris launches what he thinks is the Green K towards the sun, But it turns out that the kryptonite was not kryptonite at all, but a Green Lantern ring, which Superman Prime uses to defeat Solaris. Future Vandal Savage is tricked by the man known as Kronos, and instead of transporting away to safety, the villain is sent to Montevideo, just as the Rocket Red destroys the city. Back in the future, the heroes celebrate their victory and the return of the original Superman. The DNA provided by Lois comes in handy as they bring her back to life as well, and Superman then goes on to recreate Krypton and save everybody through some weird time travel stuff, and they all live happily ever after with a wink. The JLA returns to their own time, and the world returns to normal though a new threat looms on the horizon. (laughs) So in my reading, I was scratching my head as to what the DNA was. Was it in the main story or was it on a side tale? It is in one of the crossovers. Ah, okay. We're, we're gonna we're we're gonna get into that a little bit when we uh, when we get done with the bat side of things because this is a bat show, sure. so that's really where we have to focus on. <laughs> but in the process of rereading yeah. this, I also threw in the Superman titles because okay. it's been about twenty years since I've read those issues. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna read that too, and I'm kind of glad I did. Because one of the weird things about this crossover, as much as I love it, is that it is one of the few crossovers where you really need to read the yes, crossovers. Yeah, that's what I noticed with Batman as well. It might not have been as crucial with the DNA, but number one, you don't know what's going on with Batman because he was just sent forward. Yeah. Because as far as you know, the future Batman was evil because he knocked Batman out and like sent his astral form somewhere else. And then also how Batman attacked, I guess, Starman or like found out who he was, that happened in the mm-hmm. tie-in as well. So that was interesting mm-hmm. because normally tie-ins add to the story, but they don't have crucial details. But I noticed here there are some crucial details that the tie-ins have that the main story does not have. Well, the big thing about this and what it kind of separates it from other crossovers, uh, and it's why you really... 
at least have to read. There, there are some issues in the crossovers that are crucial, but it's one of those things where usually with a crossover, you're following the heroes as they go through their paces. And then in the side issues, they're usually just like you were saying, they're, they're, they're either not crucial or they're kind of character pieces. Like final night was a great sure. example, uh, which is another crossover. I absolutely love where the tie-ins were used to show the heroes dealing with the end of the world here. The tie-ins are used to show you what the main heroes that you've been following all these years are doing because DC 1 million itself focuses on the justice Legion. So if you want to know what Aquaman and Wonder Woman and Green Lantern and Kyle Rayner and Wally West and all them are doing, you have to read their books. You're not going to get it from the main series. And I thought that was I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a strength or a weakness Mm. because on one hand, it's kind of cool. But on the other hand, wow, that forces you to buy 40 bucks at I think they were a buck ninety nine. So you're spending like eighty dollars on this thing. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, how do you want, since you're the guest, you can decide here, do you want to do overall uh, big picture stuff or do you want to go issue by issue? As I warned you, I said that <laughs> I have many questions. I'm going to actually leave that to you because you're the one with the questions. So how do you want to oh, do that? Mm-hmm. I kind of want to go issue by issue this time. Let's go issue okay. by issue then. Well, let's see here. I guess my first question is in regards to this ragtag Titans team. Do you know what the story is or the background is here? Because it seems like very um, we're we're skimming the bottom of the bucket here with these people. Not to say that they're bad, but just to say that there are only four of them there, and it seemed like they were outmuscled. Okay, so at the time, this is I think a little after the Teen Titans series that Jeff, uh, not Jeff Johns, Dan Jurgens did which started in 96 and lasted about two years. They, by this point, I believe, had broken up. So the Titans group, that, and this is before JLA versus Titans, which or it's around that time period, which was the miniseries that led into the Devin Grayson-written Titans series that premiered uh, in very early 1999. Because the second or third issue was like February or March. Uh, I'm trying to remember exact dates here. I do apologize for that. So I think at this point the Titans were more of a ragtag okay. group uh, that was made up not at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, that's Jesse Quick. Yeah, she's yeah, a pretty I did. cool that was character. Yeah, poor, poor wording <laughs> on my part. I just meant that there are only four of them. You expect like there to be, you know, a full team going in. Yeah. I think this was probably just three heroes arsenal who is much easier to deal with in this than he is in the new 52. Oh, sure. I, I think this is just three characters arsenal kind of threw okay. together three or four okay. characters to threw together to stop Vandal Savage, uh, which was an interesting addition to the story. I think having him there was kind of cool because he's an immortal villain. You can have him in both time periods and it make perfect sense. That was actually a question, like a discussion question of whether you thought having him muddied the story and you say no. 
And it works out. At first, I thought, mm, maybe there's too much going on. If th- You don't really realize how much is going on until, I think, after the first issue because you think that Solaris and Vandal Savage are two separate things. Uh, and they are mm-hmm. in a way, but then in the future, they're also somewhat working together. So then there is like a nice little tie in there. So just for historical accuracy, because uh, I, I, I think I'm a big believer in that. <laughs> Uh, it looks like at this time, yeah, the Arsenal miniseries was going on. The Teen Titans had ended, and I think we're a month or two away uh, away from JLA versus. Uh, yes, we're a month away from JLA versus the Titans. So this is a weird interst- interstitial okay. Titans to answer your okay. question. I did have a question about why it's really an issue, too, but Vandal Savage is described as young, as if he were a different Vandal Savage. And I think that's actually answered in the Arsenal miniseries, that this Vandal Savage is a clone. Is this true? Okay, so around this time period, Vandal Savage, uh, a couple years before this, uh, actually it was 1995, was the villain in a book called Justice League Task Force. That actually started in 93, and it was basically a kind of every four issues, the creative team and the roster of the team would change. So it gave like like the first couple of issues tied into Night Quest and uh, because it showed Bruce Wayne getting a bunch of people together to go to Santa Prisca. Eventually, Justice League Task Force became this really cool title where – Gypsy and the Martian Manhunter were basically training the next generation of heroes. So you had Impulse and the Ray and a couple of others. And Vandal Savage was one of the main villains of the Ray series. And since Christopher Priest had written that series, and he's the one that was writing Sicily Task Force, uh, Vandal Savage carried over. And it was basically revealed that Vandal Savage always kept tabs on his descendants. Like, through the years, he's sired many children, and they've sired children, and he keeps tabs on them so that when he needs a new kidney or needs a a heart or something, he has donors that he can kill and get that. So that's kind of what they're talking about there. Gotcha. Well, we can talk about uh, what we think of issue one, if you would like. It's really dense, but not in a bad way. Oh, boy. No, no. But, I mean, it has to set up... Everything. Yeah, I kind of like the idea that the Justice Legion shows up, and man, I love these costumes. I love all of these costumes. Superman's costume in particular is great. Uh, that is a cool idea of a future Superman co- uh, future Superman outfit. The Flash in this is named John Fox. He is a character that appeared before this. There was a Flash special in 1990 that celebrated the 50th anniversary of the character. It told the story of the gold and silver and contemporary Flash, so Jay, Barry, and Wally. But as kind of having an overarching story to tie all of them together, there was this person named John Fox from the future who was dealing with a threat that all three of them dealt with. And through the time travel process he develops super speed and becomes the next Flash. And he actually also showed up in Mark Wade's run and replaced Wally when Wally was accidentally transported to the future 
And now he's here. Uh, and I love his costume. But I just love, like, not only them announcing who they are and what they're there for, but just seeing everyone talk about them, uh, you know, as they, you know, make their decision. And my, one of my favorite moments is they all decide that they're going to do what they're going to do. They're going to go to the future. And, right. you know, it's a really cool scene, you know, of all of the heroes being transported. And then it's like, okay, now you'll bring them back. Our man, bring them back. <laughs> and immediately it goes pear-shaped. Right, and I just right. thought that was great. I just loved it. Yeah. The ending, yeah, that ending reminded me of Fantastic Four and FF. I think it was around 2010. And I can't remember who was running at the time. Maybe Matt Fraction was running. I can't recall. But that was the idea is that the Fantastic Four were going to go off. And they were supposed to be gone for maybe like three seconds. Mm -hmm. But they picked other people. Do, does this yeah, that was the one where like, she, was She-Hulk one of them? Yeah, yeah She-Hulk. And then Johnny Storm didn't do his job. So he got his girlfriend to be in the Thing costume. It was very bizarre. So then they're like, they go off. And then three seconds ends and they're not back. So it very much, yeah, reminded me of that. Of course, this did yeah. it first. But it just uh, sort of reminded me. Of that, absolutely. I like this idea of, you know, the celebration. Uh, it seems a little strange, but it also, I think it's cool because it reminds me just of ancient games that we're going to have, you know, the celebration. And there's going to be, you know, some combat and things like that because, you know, the resurrection or the return of Superman, however you want to call it, is just this really special event at that time period. So I liked that little aspect of it. But... I do think it's ironic that Huntress is the one person to be suspicious. And even in her interaction between her and Batman, she's the suspicious one and Batman is not. I thought that, that was a little odd. Yeah, Grant Morrison's JLA is probably some of the most fun I've ever had reading comics. Because his approach to the series was, this is all big and fun. You know, even when the fate of the world is on the line and like here, like, you know, the not only is the present imperiled, but the future is imperiled, too. All the ideas are huge. And because of that, I always get a big grin on my face when I read his stories and just everybody. Like, if you look at the artwork here and Val Cmix just does a great job, uh, he, he would eventually also draw a miniseries called JLA Incarnations that kind of went through the entire history of the Justice League. And I just think that he has a great classic style that makes everybody look amazing, which is why when I got to the JLA issue and went back to Howard Porter, I wasn't feeling it as much. But there is a shot on page 13 at the bottom of that page, he just looks like the man. I mean, he just, the costume is huge, and he's got these big, huge, broad shoulders. And just looks awesome. Even, even, um, I'm not a fan of this outfit for, he's known as Tempest here, but he, uh, he is, uh, Aqualad, uh, truly. Even that costume looks great. So, he's <laughs> just on an artistic front from a writing, there was nothing about this issue I didn't like. You know, the ideas are huge. Justice Legion in the future. Sam Prime is coming out of the sun. You're going to go there and you're going to participate in these huge games. It's like the score to episode one uh, at the end where the with the celebration. Like, ah, ah, and it's just like, and but of course, because... Yeah. 
Now I got you doing it. Very good. Uh, and and so when you get to that final page where future Vandal Savage is sitting there with the main villain who's a son. Mm. Some people don't like Grant Morrison's writing. They think it's too weird. And in certain cases, I will agree with them. With with his JLA run, it is my favorite work he's ever done. Mm. Because I just think that he did with that team what you're supposed to do. And he does with this crossover what you're supposed to do with a crossover. Do you think Solaris would be cute if he weren't evil? I'm sure you could draw him that way. <laughs> like... Like 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 bashful mm. Solaris would be adorable. Bashful Solaris. Like you know, looking all. I mean, you wouldn't tell sure, he's blushing because yeah. he's red, but I guess it would yeah. be a deeper red. I do have a question about him, but it's kind of a big picture question, so I want to save that for the end. But I will say okay. that let us not pass over the fact that Oracle says it could be joking, could be not. I love you too to Nightwing, uh, whether his calm is on or off during that little interaction. I have been noting little shipping things throughout uh, my coverage here so just that little joking exchange there it it fits with their relationship at this time though keep in mind this is also the time Uh, he hooks up with huntress speak of such things (laughs) any more thoughts on one as we move on to two one of my favorite moments of the issue is page 17 wonder woman's talking about her plane and steel goes if you like i didn't even plane. i don't remember seeing it in the hangar keep it with me I actually put that in my notes of, you know, of all the times that you're going to show Steel your invisible plane, it happens to be this time. 90s alert with Jesse Quicks out, uh, by the way. Uh, there are a lot of buckles there. And when she's wearing a bathing suit, so you see a lot of her posterior, and I'm with that. I'm not sure I'm – oh, wow. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I – sorry, I just found <laughs> – yeah, page tw- 25. Well, she certainly doesn't look like the Jesse Quick on the Flash TV show. Uh, no, and she doesn't look like the Jesse Quick of the Justice Society who was dressed in oh, bell outfit. Yeah. So, did you like seeing the Oracle hologram I absolutely, face? Absolutely. Yep. And of course, she's the one to talk about, you know, the tech as the tech is being interrupted, which I think mm-hmm. is really important. But yeah, that's all I had on the okay. first one. Yeah. Okay. Well, issue two. Here we go. My question here, one of the questions was, Garth is dead, but we we find out that's not true. The vanishing point scene was difficult for me to follow, and I read it a couple times. Is this the same place that ends Zero Hour? Yes. Okay. This is the same group that Wave Rider uh, is a part of, uh, the Linear Men, uh, Lyra Lee... Uh, Rip Hunter, Matthew Ryder, uh, and that would be Matthew Ryder, not the first wave rider because he died during Zero Hour, and Matthew Ryder from the Linear Men becomes wave rider. My problem with this scene is it it seems that um, I I don't know. I don't know if Morrison likes Mm. these characters or not. And, and this is a hint on page 15 especially, of the kingdom event that is coming in a few months, which is the sequel to Mm -hmm. Kingdom Come that established hypertime. So they're kind of, because at one point, um, excuse me, Rip Hunter Mm -hmm. says the kingdom, and Morrison was a big part of developing hypertime. So that makes sense that it would be hinted at here. I really like this one. I think 
partially because Boo Beetle is narrating a great extent of it. And so to have um, mm-hmm. someone with boots on the ground narrating it was pretty cool. And then I also especially like the Adam and Oracle interactions, which really it's just, you know, Adam invading Oracle's bloodstream. But, you know, there is some history there since they were both on the Suicide Squad team together. So it's... That was it. That Adam, though. Well, the fake. Remember, he was that... fake. He was he was pretending to be somebody else. Well, there was an Adam, and then there was this Adam that was dressed up as somebody else. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking of. But no, I, I I loved their interaction. It reminded me of when that Amazo episode of Justice mm. League Unlimited, where. They call in the Adam, who is voiced by 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 the acerbic doctor from Scrubs, uh, Ted McGinley. Uh, no, not Ted McGinley. Is it Ted McGinley? Or am I confusing his name with that dude from uh, from? <laughs> never mind. Um, but he ha- he had this like really funny and flirty way of talking, and I kind of liked him because at this point, if I'm correct. The Adam is still 18 years old because he was de-aged in during Zero Hour, oh. and he was the leader of the Teen Titans. So they're playing him a lot older. Yes, but I, I liked their interaction. Yeah. I really did. Yeah. I, I I thought they made a cute couple. <laughs> so you, you're saying you ship Barbara and Ray? Uh, I ship Barbara and Ray. I ship Barbara and Dick. <laughs> I also ship Barbara and Ted. Yep, many people do. Many people do. <laughs> I, I sense here, and they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I have yet to get to that, so I can't really say okay. whether okay. I agree or disagree. I know that there is some some friendship between them, but yeah, I can't say if it's if it's more. So yeah, I like how even though Oracle is not being proactive, she's very much a key to solving the mm-hmm. issue, which I think yeah. is, is pretty cool. She doesn't always have to be at the, you know, the computer. I, I love seeing Barbara. I love seeing Oracle. Uh, I have a <clears throat> one of my associates actually is reading through my Birds of Prey trades at yeah, the moment. I remember your uh, your Facebook posts on that. Yeah. So and and, and 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 it all started when she said, you know, I like her as Batgirl, but I just really liked her as Oracle. <laughs> and I was like, have I got the comics for you? Yes. <laughs> so, no, the second issue is. It's the, you know, the rising action. Sure. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're seeing how the world is reacting to this. You're seeing more of what the Hourman virus actually is. I love Barbara's reaction to Vandal Savage being one of the big bads. Like, she's like, oh, no. Like, oh, if, she, if she's upset, it's bad. I, and I also really liked Vandal Savage. I love Vandal Savage as a villain. I don't like when they came all cannibalistic, uh, which they would play with a lot uh, in the Secret Six and all that. I don't he know eats why. Other people. Yeah, he's 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 all about eating people for a while there. But I just like the idea that there is this villain out there that was a caveman mm-hmm. that saw a meteor crash to Earth, mm-hmm. and he goes and he sleeps in front of it, and because of that, he's immortal. Yep. I kind of want that to happen. He just wanted some more. I also love Big Barda in this episode, in this issue. <laughs> in this 
this episode. Oh god, she is. It is her and Steel's interaction, and Steel is really cool throughout the entire series. Yeah. Uh, but I just love how she's like, "If you raise that mallet against me, I'll crush it in <laughs> one hand." And what she was saying there was his. Though, mm-hmm. yeah, though Steel is. Do you feel the same way that Steel is sort of treated like a rookie in this particular story? Um, he is until the point where Huntress has a line that I absolutely love, which is, you're wearing the S on your chest, you're in charge. I think everybody on the, on the Watchtower is freaking out a little bit because they're the only heroes that are currently not infected with this virus. Mm-hmm. And they all disagree on how they should handle the situation. And because of that, you have some good drama because, you know, Steel wants to get down to his family. And I think that's something that uh, Morrison picked up on from Steel's series is as much as he's a superhero, Steel's a very down-to-earth hero and and his family means everything to him. So when he was just like, I, I, don't, I, I told you guys when I joined – you know, if anything happens, I got to be with them. And Barda's trying to be the big picture person, <clears throat> the big picture Barda, I guess you could say, you could say. And she's like, no, we got to stay here and figure this out. Mm-hmm. And so you have really and truly with Big Barda, Steel and Huntress, you have your Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman analogs on, on the Watchtower. True, I don't know yeah. if that's on purpose or not. I, yeah. I just liked it. Yeah. Now, because we have a friend in common, I mean, Shagalicious, we must talk about Firestorm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great to see him. He looks great. It is great. great to see him now. Uh, I realize I'm not asking the expert here, but what uh, exactly has happened to Professor Stein? Because Firestorm here seems a little out of sorts, and he's coming up with ideas that aren't the greatest, and then he's shouted at to do something that might seem more commonsensical. But, yeah, where's his little conscience, his little floating? Okay, Horatio will (laughs) correct me. Uh, But Shagalicious, I'll use that name too. Uh, At the end of the ongoing Firestorm series, which ended at issue 100 around like 1991 or so, uh, Ronnie had been separated from the Matrix. There was an annual where there was a nuclear explosion, and Ronnie and a Russian named Mikhail Arkadin were fused together, and they formed Firestorm, but neither one of them really controlled Firestorm. He was like his own personality. And eventually it was revealed that Ronnie was never supposed to be part of the Firestorm Matrix because Firestorm was one of the Earth Elementals. Swamp Thing was the Earth Elemental. There was a a water elemental named Nyad, and there was an air elemental as well. And Firestorm was supposed to be fire. And eventually through the course of that series, uh, the way the story evolved, Mikhail and Ronnie are completely taken out of it. And it's just Professor Stein. And again, if I'm correct, Horatio can correct me if he wants to. At the end of the issue 100, he is he like leaves Earth, basically. During the course of just extreme justice. <laughs> Thanks for that. Ronnie gets his powers back. I believe it's revealed he's dying of cancer. And somehow in treating it and everything, he gets his powers back. So he's Firestorm 
but he's all that is Firestorm. There is no el- no one else in the Matrix. Uh, and and again, yeah. if if you want to get Shag uh, to listen to this and then yeah. give you a wrong, like his best Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor <laughs> wrong, you can. Sure. But that okay. is to the best of my recollection of reading all that stuff. Okay. I'm sure he'll write in. Maybe sometimes he does. I feel. Do you ever feel like? Actually, you can't. I'm afraid. But I feel like Batgirl is one of the more simplistic characters in her history. That there's just not confusing stuff going on. I mean, there's some weird continuity. Yeah. But, you know, compared to other characters, it's... I there's Well, no- with Babs, it was basically, after the crisis, a lot of her 70 adventures just kind of disappeared. And they made her a little younger, I think, uh, to have yeah. that relationship uh-huh. with Nightwing. And, you know, when you get to Batgirl year one, she's, she's much younger when she becomes Batgirl than... You know, because when you think about it, and, and you've talked about this before, but you know, it was brought up, so I might as well go through my entire thought process here. She is <laughs> a college graduate, and didn't she have a PhD as well? Correct. So she had to do graduate studies, which even if she's like a prodigy and gets out of college at like twenty, you know, that's still like another four years of study. Yeah. And she was a congresswoman. And you have to be a certain age to be a congresswoman. So before the crisis, she was much older. I don't even know why they're calling her Batgirl. Though Andy and I are having a lot of fun when she pops up in the Batman books that we're covering. So with this Barbara, I feel like a lot of that history is just gone. And she was Batgirl and she decided to quit because they didn't know how to write her. And then she was shot and they decided to keep that. And now she's Oracle so it's it, you're right. It's a much straighter line because even if she had all that stuff, she could still have been shot by the by the Joker and become Oracle, yeah. which is the worst thing that ever happened to her, and yet the best thing that ever happened to her. I'm really confused by that. Yeah, I know. It turned out a good character. It was just in like the worst possible way. <laughs> Ostrander and Yale made the best of a very very bad situation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh well, anything else on two as we move on to three? Nope, let's go to three. Okay, so issue number three, a question that I have, I guess a little continuity or maybe an error. Uh, Supergirl seems to be on TV talking about future Wonder Woman, and is she not supposed to be in one of the red suits orbiting Earth? I think they broke them out of it by that point, didn't they? I thought they were still in it at this point. Let, let me check one thing before I answer that question. Okay, okay. so between issues two and three... You had JLA 1 million. Oh, okay. Oh, I do see. Okay. And I think it was during JLA 1 million. I'm, I'm that that looking okay. at this to kind of refresh my memory. I think somewhere along the way they were free because at the beginning of number three, everybody's working to build the Solera. And it was during JLA 1 million that they decided to actually do it. And there's this great moment at the end of JLA 1 million that I absolutely love where. Starman walks in and Batman says, Starman, I accuse you of betraying the Legion, (laughs) the system, Uh. and the Commonwealth of Humanity. And that is a straight-up reference to a Bronze Age Justice League of America story. I'm pulling up the issue number right now because I forgot to write it down. But it it is one of the JLA JSA crossovers. And it was the one where the original Mr. Terrific dies. Mm. And the cover 
to the first part of that, which I almost have. And this is some of the best vamping I think I have ever done in my entire life <laughs> because it actually sounds like I have something to say and I really, sure. really don't. And Rob Kelly right now is just screaming at me because he knows exactly which crossover I'm talking about. And I can't find it. What the hell is going on here? Um, but there's an issue where, oh, it's it, Justice League of America number 172 has Batman on the cover pointing at an unknown uh, an unknown person. And he's just like, I accuse you. So it's a nice little reference to that. But yeah, by this point in the, in the story, they had all been freed because later in the issue, you also have, what's his name? Arsenal free. Right. So. You're right. It just seemed strange in the beginning. It was, uh, it was a little weird. Because yeah. I was reading what I did. I guess this, maybe this is, should not be recommended, but I read issues one through four and then I read the tie-ins. I am actually, and I'm not criticizing you one way or the other so please don't see what i'm about to say is, is that <laughs> okay. uh but if, if if the listeners have not read this yet get there is a chronology in the back of every issue that tells you yeah. what issue came out that week read it in that order <laughs> because especially uh, the, the, when we get into the batman books there are yeah. reasons that you need to do that absolutely yep so this issue's really action-packed mm-hmm. uh, compared to the other ones, and I think the it's really just pushing forward with the plan that has been seeded and then how that plan's going to change. I was pretty shocked that future Batman had been out of the picture until this issue, and it seems a little strange story-wise. I mean, it works now, but just in, you know, where is he in, in issues one and two, really? So it's just strange that he finally popped up in this crucial moment. But mm-hmm. again, with the tie-ins, it sort of works, but with the main story, it's just odd. <laughs> he shows up has a conversation in JLA 1 million with future Superman and then accuses Starman at the end. And we open it up on him just beating the, he's beating Starman like Starman owes him money. I mean, it's just, I'm getting real tired of you. I thought this issue gave us a satisfying conclusion to contemporary Vandal Savage's story. Uh, I really like the fact that we see him with his eye, damaged and in the future we see him with an eye patch and i love that goes not today perhaps not tomorrow but soon even if it takes ten thousand years i can wait i have for i was that's great for an immoral villain but i really like seeing solaris get built and it's funny because rachel and i've been watching a lot of doctor who and there was an episode that was basically built around this concept that something Let's say you go back in time, okay, and you love Beethoven, and you go back and you have all of your sheet music. The bootstrap theory. The bootstrap theory, thank you. Uh, The bootstrap theory. Google it, as the doctor said at the beginning of the episode, where you have all your sheet, all the sheet music, because you want him to sign the sheet music, right? But you get back in time, and there is no Beethoven. Beethoven doesn't exist, but... Somehow, through your music being there, somebody assumes the role of Beethoven and releases that music as his own, and that's how Beethoven's music is really is is let loose on the world. It's bootstrap paradox. The, uh, the bootstrap paradox. My wife keeps correct. Thank you. 
No, I appreciate that. But here's the question. Who wrote that music? Now, this doesn't quite fit there because we see them building Solaris. But would Solaris ever have been built Mm. if he didn't exist in the future to threaten it? Right. I just, it's it's science fiction at its best. Yeah. And I just love it. (laughs) Yeah. And once you get, because it's confusing until you realize what's happening. Yeah. Which I think was a dumb statement that I just made. But because you're wondering... Like, okay, Solaris, what are they doing here? What, Like, why are they constructing? And they're like, oh, wait, what they're constructing becomes what they have to fight. So then, mm-hmm. like, once that sinks, I think a lot of the stuff really starts to come together. And that's, when you think about it, they are unleashing upon the universe a being that kills thousands, if not millions of people. Mm-hmm. But they have to, to make the future happen. It's uh, it's 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 like one of those things where Morrison at his best works on multiple levels and it's another reason I love this crossover because there's big action, there's lots of fun superhero stuff, but man it makes you think. It does, yeah. And and I like that it, 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 I think this is why I liked it so much when when I was <clears throat> 20 years younger. God, this was out before I met my wife. This was like almost a year before I met my wife. Weird. Anyways, um, the, I I think this is why it engaged me more as an event because unlike Genesis, which tried to explain where everyone's powers came from, yep. and that's kind of the hook, this is like, no, here's big ideas and I'm going to throw them all at you, but it's mm-hmm. all going to make sense in the end. Yep. What did you think of the death of Starman? I thought... I liked I well I actually really liked that art. I think the last couple of pages, well I guess what is that? 18 17 18. I just think it's really dynamic art and really interesting the way he's, you know, zooming towards it. The eye is like, you know, beaming out this power and he's mm-hmm. fighting against it. Uh I liked it. I like uh I guess the question is, you know, can he make up for the mistakes that he has committed slash would have committed? It also reminds me of when Superman was going to sacrifice himself in, was it Final Night or was it Genesis? Final Night. Okay. And he's about to sacrifice himself again in this issue or in the next issue. Uh, but no, I thought that it was it was well done. And I like the how we change uh, voiceovers. So you sort of, even though you may have seen him as a betrayer, you he gains, I think, sympathy towards the end of this issue. So... Here is one of those instances where you really need to read the crossovers. The Hourman crossover? No. The the Starman crossover is incredibly important because during it, Jack Knight is not on Earth. He is out in the stars uh, for reasons that I will not get into because it kind of reveals something kind of big. But I'm going to drop this spoiler that's you know almost 20 years old. Okay. The future Starman goes and visits Ted Knight, the original Starman. Mm-hmm. And I haven't read the issue in a really long time. But during the course of the story, Ted dies. And this is where he, and it's in the crossover where you first learn that this Starman is the traitor. Cuz you kind of think it's Hourman, but it's not. Mm. It's actually the Starman and it's there and 
it was really, really sad that Jack was off planet when his father dies. So when he, he doesn't even know that he dies until he comes back. Was it foul play? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I don't know if he just has a heart attack or somehow future Starman kills him because it's all about how he feels like he can't live up to the heritage of Ted and Jack. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why he turned traitor is because he feels like a fraud. Mm. But it's a really it was a really good issue and it was really emotional. And I just I love it's it, again, it's one of those reasons why there are certain crossovers that you really need to read one of them is not as real by the way i would uh, just agree wanna, with that i just want to put that out that. yeah no i i'm sorry i i went through all that just to get it and then i'm like oh wow this wasn't worth it at all <laughs> no you're fine no i just that wasn't that wasn't a shot at you that was a shot at the fact that god that book sucked um <laughs> oh boy I'm being nice to Stella. See, Rachel's taking up for you. <laughs> but no, it's just, it, it, it's like if you're reading it and, you know, you find out that Starman was the traitor and then sacrifices himself, you get something out of it. But reading that Starman one million just adds another emotional weight to the whole thing. I'm sorry I missed that. No, it's okay. I, <laughs> I didn't say we needed to read that, so <laughs> that's on me. <laughs> How weird, though, that little rod thing looks. Yeah, it's 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 kind of strange, but it's the future, you know. I don't know. They would have called it a gravity or cosmic rod. Yeah. So I'll say um, when I was expecting man to slap our man at one point because that's like basically wall. I don't even know if that's the best word. And you know, then he says, "Oh, I'm sorry, it was the virus taking over." But really, our man actually is being slightly obnoxious. <laughs> he's not helping anything with what he's doing. Power Man, enough. I'm sick of your self-important adolescent <laughs> whining. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I love that page, too, because John Fox is trying to build stuff in the background, and that's really funny. Yes, because he's like, didn't I just do this? Yeah. 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 So. Though I will say Power Man is overall not as obnoxious as Plastic Man is in this story. And boy, John John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, is the freaking man in this issue. <laughs> he has yeah. had enough of Vandal Savage. Yeah, <laughs> he really kept it together. Like he, I mean, who would you say is the leader right now in this era of Justice League? I think everyone looks at Superman as the leader, but in the oh, last yeah. issue, Batman makes a comment about their master tactician still being their master tactician. John was the tactician. Yeah. He was the one that coordinated everybody. And when you think that this is, we're getting into the era of Batman is infallible and can do everything. The fact that he would sit side saddle basically to John almost like he, he's like, he's like, you know, I'm good, but this guy's better. So we're going to listen to him is, is just really yep. cool. Yep, yep. The power of Martin Manhunter who I, I feel like he's underrated. Oh, he's completely underrated. And it's the funny thing is, because if you look at the history of the Justice League in general, up until the mid-80s, even though Martian Manhunter was a founding member, he wasn't around for most of the 70s and early 80s. He left the book. So he's not part of the satellite era, which is what a lot of people consider to be the classic version of the Justice League. But then he comes back during the Detroit League, and sees that out and then goes over to the Bwahaha era, which is covered on mm. Chagalicious's podcast. 
and he's the kind of the rock through that one. And then he's teaching the next generation of heroes in Justice League Task Force. And then Morrison and, and, and Fabian Ecieza and Mark Wade before him did a, did a miniseries called uh, Justice League Midsummer's Nightmare, uh, which got the group back together. But it was Morrison who really brought him back and made him like one of the premier members of the group again. And it's funny because there's a there's a, a wizard special. There were two JLA wizard specials, and when and the each the each had, each of them had a chapter on all the main characters. And in in the in the Martian Manhunter chapter of one of them, Morrison actually puts out there that maybe there's a little racism in John not mm. being as popular because he's not because he's sure. you know not human looking and green. So and this it's really funny. There, at Martian Manhunter's ongoing series, there was a zero issue, there was the one million issue, and then there was issue one. And the one million issue is where you see Green Lantern encountering John on Mars. And we get that whole end of it, which is really only talked about in the final issue of this series. So, again... You really got to yeah. read the crossovers. <laughs> yeah, that's the lesson to learn here, folks. And read them in sequential, yes, a yeah. certain order, so, yeah. For once, yeah. Well, anything else on three as we hit the final issue? Let's hit the final issue because I'm blabbing way too much and keeping us <laughs> way too long. Well, hey, speaking of that, have you done a show where you examine DC One Million? Not yet. Okay. Um, Jeff and I haven't gotten there okay. yet. I just want to be sure because, I mean, we could go through this with a fine-tooth comb, but I feel like maybe my show's not the place for that. So that's why yeah, I am. No, I don't, I don't Okay, that's why I'm doing like a cursory look because I feel like you're probably going to do it. So there you go. So that's a little shout-out for the future, the 853rd century. That'll probably <laughs> will be when Jeff and I finally get to 1998. Oh, so there you, there you go. go. Well, this was – I did have a question because I was getting confused here with sort of the science, mainly the DNA sample, but now it's been clear, cleared up mm-hmm. by you. So, again, you know, the tie-in thing that we keep saying here. We've got a huge moment for Kyle Rayner uh-huh. who, who uh, underestimates himself, and everyone's like, no, you can, you can do it. I think it's Batman, right, that says, you know, yep. you can do – or your ring does whatever you imagine, so just do it, and he does – which is amazing. Yeah, Morrison really, I think Ron Mars was doing a magnificent job in the Kyle Rayner ongoing, the Green Lantern ongoing, with making Kyle like a great character. Morrison, I think, is who legitimized him on the universal stage because he really treated that character with respect. And there were moments where he would have doubts. And I love the fact that it's Batman not being a jerk, by the way. Batman's the one going, no, you can do this. I know you can yeah. do this. And, you know, just the idea that they contain the, you know, the, the explosion of a sun. And then you have the awesome moment of what you think is a kryptonite bullet hitting the sun. But it's really Superman Prime getting a <laughs> Green Lantern ring, which makes him a little powerful. Yeah. It's just it's it's a huge bombastic ending, and it's just great. And my goodness, Huntress is the one who came up with the plan. And I love that too because 
it legitimizes her on a universal stage yeah. and it treats her with respect. Yeah, and Batman somewhat validates her, which has been – this has been an ongoing issue between the two of them since – Yeah, know, the and then that would kind of fall apart during No Man's Land until well, the very end. great. <laughs> Thanks for spoiling it. <laughs> That's, that's not a spoiler. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> no, because that doesn't tell. No, that doesn't tell you anything. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's been a little while since I've read it. Your copies, in fact, that you so nicely uh, sent me. But yeah, yeah, I try. I always argue in favor of Huntress against Donovan. So this is just another another little <laughs> thing that I can give. Him. Which is funny because she gets in the way of your shipping. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> you girls got to stick together. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I do like, though, that Huntress uses her knowledge as a teacher to come up with a plan because she was talking about how her eighth graders were doing the, the time capsule. So clearly, mm-hmm. let's apply this eighth grade situation and save the world. But again, it's beautiful in its simplicity. Right? And it was what the villains were doing, so they just outthought the villains. Yeah. Uh, my My one problem with the whole thing, though, is... Most radioactive substances have a half-life, so would kryptonite still be good in the 853rd century? Mm. And would the ring have powered out by that time, too? Yeah, well, it's comics. Yeah. That's the real. That's the real explanation. No, it's a. It's a fantastic ending. Uh, you know, every just about everybody gets to have a really cool moment. There's a uh, funny scene on page 21 where the Justice League is around their table and Plastic Man has a ribbon that says A+, uh, that he obviously put off. <laughs> that they're hinting at the Mageddon storyline, that's coming, which is the end of Morrison's run. A uh, really nice scene with Huntress and Batman. Love Oracle closing out you know, the, the, second, the first epilogue. And man... What a great thing to do to Vandal nice. Savage. <laughs> just, oh, that was just a great cherry on yeah. top of everything. No, I, I love this main yeah. series, and it's really exciting. And I love that Superman, the, the Superman Prime ends with a wink, uh, which is a very comic book George Reeves thing to do. And that, in the even though she is basically kind of like platinum with Wes Lane's DNA, Lois and Superman are reunited. And that just makes sense. Oh, it always does. It always does. That makes me smile. What exactly does Resurrection Man, what is his part in this issue? Okay. So Resurrection Man was Mitch Shelley. And I I only read a little bit of his series. But basically, he was a take on a character called the Immortal Man, who was the other caveman that was exposed to the meteor that gave Vandal Sedge his thing, his abilities. Mitch Shelley, basically, every time he dies, he is immediately with a new superpower, which is the Resurrection Man. In the future, he is trying, he, he helps Superman, uh, present-day Superman, who's in the future. Uh, he helps him in an issue, and he's basically, he's basically the one that goes to put a stop to Vandal Savage. So that, that's kind of his end of it. Okay. I, I've read a crossover with him and Swamp Thing. That's the only time. So I actually knew who he was, but I, I just thought that he was a little random here. But I guess now that you've explained that there's some past history, because it did seem that mm-hmm. Vandal Savage hated him, but I just didn't know why. Yeah. But that makes better sense of what was happening. Yeah, and, and I think 
they hinted at the beginning of the Resurrection Man series, uh, which was written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, by the way, who basically recreated the Marvel cosmic yeah, universe Guardians of the Galaxy, yep. <laughs> with Guardians of the Galaxy and all that. That uh, it was hinted that he was the immortal man, but if I'm correct, it was revealed that he wasn't quite the okay. immortal man because the immortal man actually died during the crisis. I'm glad I have answers for everything, even if they're not completely <laughs> complete. You're going to have to give me a B minus. Uh, what's funny is on. that I said I warned you. I said I have many questions, and you said as long as it's not about Grant Morrison, I think like his storytelling <laughs> will be okay, and it's true. Yeah. All of them have been answerable. So that works out. <laughs> Anything else on four? No, okay. I am. I am good to go. I think. I think we should uh, deal with uh, the 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 reason why most of people are probably tuning in is to hear about the back characters. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've got a couple of discussion questions here. We can certainly start off with something that I always ask when we do or when I do stories is whether this story would have worked without Barbara. Gordon. No. Not at all. You needed you needed Oracle coordinating everybody. She was integral to the plot. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, this was when she was a member of the League, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I have the Oracle sticker on my desktop here. Because <laughs> uh, Wizard Magazine, in one of their issues, had a sticker set of all of the faces of the Justice League. And one of them was Oracle, the Oracle the green holographic thing. Yep. So basically, uh, in addition to having Intel, uh, my computer has Oracle inside. Yeah, I agree. I think to a certain extent, Martian Manhunter keeps them together, but she's got uh, a whole other duty, I think, to perform. And she's the one who breaks through what was going on with the virus. And then, like I said before, she's also serving a different purpose physically because Adam is able to use her to figure out how that virus is actually working. So she helps on multiple levels. So I like this. And this is a big, uh, it's a big story for her. We see her in different ranges, you know, Gotham citywide, and then this is sort of global and I guess galactic to a certain extent and future, you know, time. Mm-hmm. So this might be the biggest story she's been in. I would say so. I mean, this, this, this dealt with basically almost the entire universe. Yeah. So, yeah, I would definitely say that. Would you say that this is an accessible story for most people? Not as accessible as it could be, but not completely impenetrable. Mm. Like you – to truly get uh, what you you would want to get out of it, I would say that this is integral to Morrison's run on JLA. Okay. Uh, So I would say reading his run on JLA would kind of prep you for this. Mm The Justice Legion actually first appeared during the Rock of Ages storyline, and that's where Our Man uh, first showed up. So it it was carried over here. If you were just – like let's say you were just reading the Bat titles at this point Mm -hmm. and you weren't reading Justice League, but you wanted to read the main series in addition to the crossovers, I think because of the heavy presence of future Batman and a couple of those crossovers – you would have your end to the overall story. Okay. As a as someone who could potentially be put in into that most people situation, uh, because I had never heard of it, and JLA, I know of the Justice League, but this is an era that I've not really dabbled in. It was accessible. I think there are some head-scratching moments, and obviously you have to be careful how you're reading it. Like I said, there were some gaps, and I didn't. there were some crucial 
bits that were missing <laughs> that you need to know. But overall, I thought that it was it was okay. It was accessible. Well, I'm, and I'm glad you enjoyed it yeah. too, more than anything. Because I, I, I hate the idea that I was like, "Yeah, you need to read this," and you're like, "Man, Mike, that suck." <laughs> <laughs> so. No, no. Uh, do you think this is a? Uh, could this be seen as a throwback to Starro? Solaris has a lot of Starro in him. I could see that. And Especially I also wonder wise. if we're getting to a uh, sort of a trope of heroes trying to repurpose villains or villainous technology to be used for good. Yeah, because they're uh, one of the Superman crossovers actually tells the entire history of the Superman dynasty and Solaris. And at one point, he is good, but apparently, he's had enough of that and just turns evil again. It also reminded me of the Legion. Now, I've not really read any of the Legion except for the Great Dark Side War that I just did, but I did listen to Who's Who and the Legion, and they were talking about some machine I think that killed a triplicate girl, one of her triplicates, and then mm-hmm. because that was a repurposed, Computer. wasn't that a repurposed evil machine, or it would be? Computer. If I'm remembering it correctly, Computo was evil, and then Brainiac basically uh, turned him into the major domo for the for the Legion. And there were people that were like, I don't know if I trust this. And let's be fair, Stella, you're still listening to Who's Who in the Legion. You know, Shag, <laughs> Horatio, yeah. if I may, has over the years given me a lot of static. Not okay. shock, just static. For having oh, long man. episodes. And that man. Yeah. Who, man. Okay. Yeah. So, Shad, we're even. And that's, that's all I'm saying I'm about that. I'm glad to hear. We should start a club because he also gets on me about my long episodes. Yeah. And then he turns around and, and just, <laughs> just. Like, I think oh, all man. told, the, the Legion, the Who's Who and the Legion is like 11 hours and or something. That one episode like that. he had to split up because it was really long or something. Yeah, it was like five hours between <laughs> the two episodes. What a hypocrite! So yeah, Shag. Yeah, oh I'm just goodness. saying. Oh, wow. Well, you know, viruses are all the rage in the 90s. I learned that from this story as well. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I will have to say, on an overall thing about the story, uh, the computer speak is not as dated as Hackers, oh, the movie oh, Hackers, nice. except in the Catwoman issue. Okay. Where I feel like they're piling on tech talk, but... The, the fact is, this probably would have done better to come out in 99, because oh. then you could have played into the fear oh, of Y2K. Yeah, that's true. Well, overall, I I really liked this this story. I was nervous about it. So your recommendation carries lots of weight. But I will say that before this, several months before this, I was reading my latest Peter David volume of Supergirl, and Supergirl 1 million happened Mm -hmm. to be in there. And so I was reading it, and number one, the Supergirl in there is super obnoxious. And number two is just super weird, and I was thinking to myself, oh no, is this what 1 million is going to be DC woman? So I was actually really nervous going into it. So I was breathing sighs of relief when I was reading this. I thought um, issue one started off a little bit slowly, but like you said, you know, it is, you know, there's information that needs to be put down on the table. But I think great villains that you feel like they have no commonality between them, but then you're like shocked when they actually are working together in the future. People coming together, people fighting things. You know, Kyle Rayner showing unimaginable strength, Superman showing a great moment where he's like trying to beat through 
the the wall and and get into the future. I think just lots of of great moments, and of course Barbara Gordon plays a great role, and she's well written. So I recommend this as a as someone who enjoyed Zero Hour and all sort of the futuristic things. I I think that this is highly recommended. And I think this is where Jeff Johns and all of them got the idea of punching the walls <laughs> of time uh, messes with time a little bit. Because there's a mention of a hero being born oh, a few minutes right. after yep, she yep, was yep. supposed to be because of Superman 1 million mm-hmm. punching the time barrier. What would you give this out of, what should we say, out of 10 Solarises? I would give this 10 oh, out of 10 wow. Solarises. That is yeah, high. I, 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 I am unapologetic of my love for this story. You know, I could, like with everything in life, you know, you can nitpick here and there. But just on a sheer level of sitting down and having a ball reading a comic series and an event, I think Morrison stepped up to the plate. I think he knocked it out of the park, and I, I think he got the touchdown. <laughs> and whatever it is, what you do you in cricket, going, I'm not man. quite sure. I don't think even Andy Leyland knows. You know, he he uses it. He kind of talks about crossovers so there's a little metatextual thing going on but it never gets in the way of Mm -hmm. the story and i think the crossovers especially the ones that i've read all add uh, well except for asriel and catwoman and supergirl uh all add something to the overall Mm -hmm. story which is also rare yep i'm gonna i'm not gonna give it a 10 out of 10 i don't know that i've have for any of these 90 stories yet so that'll be interesting once i find it but i will give it a 9 out of 10 i think it was yeah it was well done i'm trying to think now now that i've done a couple of these stories where i would rank it and i still even though shagalicious um gets upset at me still you know i think final night is slightly overrated so i will say that this is better than final night i would put this um i would go this one one, DC 1 million, <laughs> forgot what we were doing for a moment, DC 1 million, Final Night Genesis, I think is what I would do. How would you rate okay. it? Well, I guess you'd do the same thing, wouldn't you, of those three? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I liked Final yeah. Night a lot, so I would put it slightly under DC 1 million, but only because the stakes are higher in sure. DC 1 million. Yeah. Even though it's it's the threat of extinction of life on planet Earth mm-hmm. in Final Night, it is still pretty much confined to yeah. planet Earth, where this goes not only to the future, but to the entire mm-hmm. solar system in the future. Yeah, Maybe I should give Final Night another shot, see if I like it more. <sighs> Genesis, um, well... I cleaned up the dog paper this morning, and that's about where I would put Genesis. <laughs> and then there's that one I did with Shag also about the Underworld Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> I love Underworld oh, Unleashed. Man. Oh, man. I, I, that has one of the creepiest moments in a comic book oh, ever for it? me. It's the moment where Naren tempts Batman. Oh. And he shows him Jason Todd, and the text, as Batman is like literally on the ground, looks like he's sobbing. It says he sat. He hears the sound, not unlike a crowbar hitting a pumpkin. And then you realize he's hearing the Joker beat Jason Todd to death. And it was really like some of the things they did in the crossovers of that one were kind of. But overall, I loved the writing of the main series. Mark Wade was on the top of his game, 
Howard Porter drew the heck out of it. And because they couldn't use Superman, they gave us something almost just as good. Whereas Captain Marvel was yes, the linchpin of, of, of the, of the ending. And the only reason that it wasn't Superman is that Superman was in space oh, okay. at the time. And Barbara Gordon plays a huge role. I mean, he spends some Neron spends some t- major time trying to tempt her. And then, and then it just turns into who's who. But, <laughs> that it does. Yes, it really did. Oh man. But no, she. You know, just just about everybody he tempts that's a hero is mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, I put I put Underworld Unleashed right next Final to Night. Final Night, and and then I used Genesis for Dark Paper. Okay. Well, now we're going to hit up, uh, very briefly, I I would say, the Mm tie-ins. There are so many of them, and I wanted to almost give you a taste of so many of how many there really are by actually naming them, and I will not go one million every time, so I'm just going to do this really quickly. Week one, we had Action Comics, Shadow of the Bat, Nightwing, Green Lantern, Power of Shazam, and Young Justice. Oh, I probably read that Young Justice one in my read-through. I just don't remember it. Week two, we have Batman, Man of Steel, Starman, Impulse, Green Arrow, Legionnaires. Never heard of it. Asriel. Uh, week three, Superman, Superboy, Detective Comics, JLA, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Chase. Never heard of it. Creeper. Week four, <laughs> we had Martian Manhunter, Adventures of Superman, Resurrection Man, Catwoman, Robin, Flash, and Supergirl, the one that made me nervous. And then week five, so I guess it was a five Wednesday month in 98, uh, we had Superman, Man of Tomorrow, Kronos, Young Heroes in Love, Lobo, Hitman, and Legion of Superheroes. Man, I should have looked up Lobo because I cannot even imagine what that guy would be like in the 853rd century. Probably still fragging things all over the place. Two very, a uh, couple please. small notes. One, Chase. Yes, please. <laughs> was Cameron uh, Chase of okay, the DEO. That okay. was her title. Did she always have a title? She first appeared in Batman okay. 550, and then she had a very oh, short lived okay. title uh, that Martian Manhunter was tied in. And it's where the DEO really okay. first came into the picture of the DC Universe. Young Heroes in Love was part of the series of books that came out in 97 that were different. And it was basically a soap opera with superheroes. Like the CW could do that show in a heartbeat because it's all about who's in love with who and et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was a fun little title. You said you didn't know what Legionnaires was? Is it supposed to be like... It's the second Legion oh, of Superheroes okay. book. There okay. were two of them. I wasn't sure. When I see that and the spelling and everything... I think that it's like a military yeah. title. You, 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 when you see Legionnaires, you do wonder why does that have yeah. two ends in it? But okay. you know, it's just yeah. That was a, there was two Legion okay. books at the time. In fact, during Final Night, in one of the Legion books, dealt with the heroes that were trapped in the twentieth century, and the other one dealt with the the ones from the the thirtieth century. But those crossovers, the Legion of Superheroes and Legionnaires, I believe take place a thousand years from this one, from the 853rd century. Okay. So. Interesting. Well, yeah, just to note again that some of these actually do add a piece of the story. Uh, I noted specifically Batman, but now we know definitely JLA, of course, and which wraps it up, and Superman. So those are some things that you might want. Oh, and you said Starman. That would be some crucial ones. Yeah. Starman. 
definitely. Green Lantern okay, and Martian so those Manhunter. those are crucial ones to look for. <laughs> I would say that it also just adds more detail about the virus than the main book does. Some of them, anyways. Mm-hmm. And oddly, things that I'm not used to, again, is that some of them are continuations of each other. Batman and Catwoman, it was like a one-part and then a two-part. Shadow of the Bat goes into Nightwing, goes into Detective, goes into JLA. So I, this was very mm-hmm. new experience for me where these tie-ins actually meant something and were worthwhile <laughs> uh, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, so so we're going to just hit on some of these, just to tell you a little bit about them. Uh, Shadow of the Bat was called A Never-Ending Story, and it was actually the future Dark Knight in present-day Gotham. But he's supposed to, he's trying to get away from Jim Gordon and the GCPD because they know that he's someone else. Uh, any thoughts on this one? Was it worthwhile, not worthwhile? I love the origin of the future Batman that his parents were guards on the prison planet and they were killed in front of him. And so he decides that he's going to bring order to the prison planet. Uh, I love his costume. Mark Buckingham, uh, who would go on to draw uh, the Titans series uh, and then do fables. Um, And I'm saying Buckingham uh, in case Stephen Lacey is listening to this, because if I say Buckingham, he's going to give me crap again. Um, it's one of the ones that I really enjoyed because it just gave me the background of this character and that led into the Nightwing issue, which was also mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Was this one, see, they're all bleeding together. Was this one also where he does actually encounter Jim Gordon and Jim Gordon was upset because, of yes. course, Batman has lied to him in the past and has, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because that is a, I mean, it's a theme. And, you know, Jim in No Man's Land feels very betrayed by Batman not being there and such. So I look forward to that. Next was Nightwing. It was called The Anachronism. And this was written by Chuck Dixon and penciled by Scott McDaniel. And this is where Nightwing actually meets the futuristic Batman. And they actually go off and uh, try to bring down some people. They learn from one another and then they stop Sly Fox and Riddler's henchman Query and who happened to be posing as construction workers in the middle of a robbery. I loved the fact that the future Batman picks a fight <laughs> because that's what he thinks yes, they need to do. Yeah. Oh, it's a great way to play with the tropes. Sure. I loved it. I, I, this is another fun one. But it's it's Chuck Dixon and Scott McDaniel yeah. on Nightwing. So I'm kind of predisposed yeah. to love it. Uh, Batman 1 million, as I'll call him, does mention Oracle. So, I mean, she's Mm -hmm. famous even in the 853rd century. Now, this one, let me ask you this. How awesome was the Robin of the Future's origin? I really like that. It's so different. It's so sad. He is a robot that has the consciousness of Mm -hmm. Batman before his, uh, the the future Batman before his parents were killed. I was just like, oh, my God, that is so tragic. It is just so amazing at the same time. Yeah, it's so unique, I think. It's just something we've not really seen before. Having said that, I hate every future villain. I I just absolutely hate every future villain. They're all just a copy of, which I guess makes sense. But, you know, if only there could be new things. But they're basically, yeah, just copies of and reimaginings of the classic Batman villains. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, next was Batman, Peril Within the Prison Planet, writer Doug Mensch and penciler Yvel Wiche. 
And Inker Salbushema, can't forget him because of our Spider-Man relationship, you and I. Uh, But here, (laughs) this is the one where I was like, oh, okay, finally. Because we see present-day Batman waking up in the back Mm -hmm. cave of the future on Pluto. Because up until this moment, if you had been me and was not wise, you just knew that the future Batman had knocked Batman out and you had no idea what happened. So this is (laughs) – this explains all that. Basically – Robin, the toy wonder, explains that they're in a prison within Pluto, and it's a future Arkham Asylum, and they have to get out of it, basically. I mean, Robin tells Batman he needs to go to Justice League headquarters in orbit around Jupiter, and they have to avoid Metaclay, who has merged with the planet Pluto, (laughs) and of course there's Riddle City and Dice God, and then inmates are escaping all over the place, including the Laugher. And Robin basically says there's one person that can help us. And then you know who it's got to be? It's got to be Catwoman. <laughs> so was this worth it? Yes or no? I hear you tapping. It was. It's worth it. I just hate the villains. I just, just – I love the idea that Batman was not physically transported to the future – but his consciousness was and put into a cloned body of the future Batman. And I loved the toy oh, wonder. He's the best part. And I love the idea that Pluto is Arkham Asylum. Yes. And I love that Batman's the warden and, you know, basically keeps the lid in anything. But the laugher, the laugher was a Superman villain on the radio show. That was actually the name of it. It's not the same character, but Riddle City, Dice God, Meta Clay. It's just like somebody's trying way too hard here. I do at least like that Catwoman, you know, her her future, her destiny, her fate seems to be entwined with Batman and that. Don't you mean Cyber oh, Catwoman? I'm so sorry. Cyber Catwoman. I'm s- you know, she's <sighs> she's going to be wrapped up in Batman no matter what. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So would you They're say no? Uh, I would say yes. I would okay. say read it. I just – there's parts okay. of it I didn't like. Uh, next is uh, – Asriel is Angel Wings, writer Dennis O'Neill, artist Vincent Giorano. And I don't even know how to explain this. I, I feel like there's a cartoon character that's just like this. But basically we've got this angel as we call him and he's got these special wings that have just been created for him. And he can go wherever he wants, whenever he wants. And this guy is like – he really wants to you know, be a hero and do clean up things. But wherever he goes, he is messing stuff up. It's getting really obnoxious. And then he comes back and realizes that like the he's the evil that he should have been cleaning up. And now that he knows, he can be a hero. <laughs> thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs yeah, way down. This was, was terrible. Uh, basically, you get sum it almost up. He gets his wings. He goes. He screws up but doesn't care. Yeah. Then he screws up and he doesn't care. And then he meets a version of himself and they go off to hang out. That's basically it. It's like Deadpool ruins the universe. Yeah, you can skip but this yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, Detective Comics, The Bug That Ate Tomorrow, writer Chuck Dixon. Did you just snort? Yes, I did. Penciler Greg Land. Uh, The Batman of the 853rd century tries to use the computers in the Batcave to find an antidote for the Hourman virus, but he finds a present-day technology too limiting and concludes the only way to stop the virus in time and defeat Solaris is to create Solaris. So another key thing here. I believe Tim is in this one. 
Am I correct mm-hmm. in that? Okay. Yes. I like the – I see. I'm sorry. I've actually read them. It's just that they're blending together. So that's why I'm asking these questions. I like the interactions between the two of them because Tim is such a tech whiz. And so hearing about that, like he's in awe, I think, of Batman of the 853rd century when he's talking about all the technology and stuff. It's super funny, especially because Tim thinks that the Bat computer is amazing. But here we've got this guy like, ah. That's so awesome. <laughs> it's basically me looking at like uh, we had uh, video games at work that we were selling for the Christmas holiday that were the little football games from the 70s. It, it's basically like going and playing off of your PlayStation 4 and then going to that. It's just <laughs> I, I think that's what it's like for him. Uh, Dixon once again delivers an amazing issue. Yep. I love that Garfield Lynn's the Firefly is just oh. so upset that this Batman flies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, this isn't fair. Uh, the action is great. I love the interplay with Dick and Alfred and the future Batman. It's just, it's just like this one, this one technically isn't really a big important part of the story, but I would read it anyways. Cause it's just an, it's just an amazing issue. Mm-hmm. I agree. Thumbs up on that one. Next, JLA, 1 million prisoners of the 20th century. Writer Grant Morrison and penciler Howard Porter. To stop the Hourman virus from destroying the world, the Justice League Alpha has decided to build Solaris, but they need help. So they visit the Justice League Watchtower, only to find themselves in a fight, of course, with the present-day Justice League of America. Uh, But eventually, they stop fighting, and they end up working together. And this is also where Starman regroups with everybody and is immediately attacked by Batman, who accuses him of being a traitor, as Michael had mentioned. Yeah, I would say that you need to read this. Yes. It's a in the in the trade paperback for DC mil, one million, this is in the middle of the book. Mm, okay. So, yeah. So one two JLA three four. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just two more, Catwoman, 9 million lives, writer Jim Ballon and Devin Grayson, and penciler Jim Ballon, the feline fatale of 853rd century, holds the fate of the universe in her hands, her cyber hands. The Catwoman of the future may be the only person on the prison planet of Pluto who can circumvent the state-of-the-art security of the Batcave to steal a teleporting boom suit from the cavern that is the home of the Dark Knight of Tomorrow. So this wraps up that little uh, three-part where basically Batman needs to get at out of there and go to meet up with the rest of his compatriots. So, for whatever reason, and I don't know why, during this reading this issue, my iPad was playing loud, <laughs> annoying techno music. Um, oh, because you made e- it. Do every it. every word out of Devin Grayson's <laughs> script is oh, computer jargon. It's important because it gets Batman to the techno suit yes. or to the boom suit, which yeah. is important. But, like, if you really just want someone to tell you Catwoman helps him get the boom suit, yeah, because it's all about her going, I can do this, I can do this, I can't do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can't do this. I can. Do- I-, I did it, aha, let me loose, I'm Catwoman, hear me roar. As quiet as a headnet chat room lobby. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw that I was flipping through. Uh, it, hurts, you- <laughs> it hurts, it hurts. You know, at least oh with hackers, it's goodness. fun. Well, let us end on a happy note. Yes. Or potentially a sad note. Uh, This is Robin, Dark Planet, writer Chuck Dixon, and penciler Staz Johnson. Will the toy wonder of the 853rd century make the ultimate sacrifice to enable Batman to save the universe from destruction at the hands of Solaris? The answer is yes. 
And what happens when the Joker of the future gets his hands on Batman's boom suit? Oh, man. I loved Robin the Toy Wonder. I thought he was one of the best things to come out of this this little crossover here. But it was very sad and tragic. At yeah, the but I think he comes back. So. I, yeah, I think it's totally doable. Now, I liked this issue as well. Again, it's Chuck Dixon, so I'm predisposed yeah. to. God, he did, he did very well in playing with all of the titles that he wrote, working it into into the overall story. I'm very impressed with that. Uh, I would also recommend, not that it's important to the story, but read the Young Justice one million, because not only is it all of the the Superboy, the Robin the Toy Wonder, and the Impulse of the Future, all talking about their predecessors and imagining stories, Peter David litters the script with kind of poking fun of lovingly all the other crises that ever happened. Ah. Uh, It's a lot of fun. Uh, I'd recommend that too, but no, just the only one here that you don't have to read it all is Asriel. Yeah. Uh, and the only one that you can skim through is Catwoman. Otherwise I'd say all of them are well worth your time. Absolutely. I agree with you, which isn't true of many crossovers. Yeah, I will agree with that as my (laughs) dog bumps her head on my microphone. Oh no. Are you stretching? Yes, you are. Well, as we wind down. Okay. I have one question mm-hmm. for you. It's about Tim. Okay. Do you know who Stephanie Brown is? Yes, I know who Stephanie Brown is. Do you know who Ariana is? Yes, I know who Ariana is. Okay. <clears throat> I recently reviewed a story arc where Tim was hanging out with Steph as spoiler, you know, and they are, you know, battling things out, but at the same time, he's still dating Ariana. Mm-hmm. And I accused him of cheating. Do you think that Tim was cheating on Ariana? I think Tim was writing a very dangerous line. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate your seriousness. Here's the thing. Tim yes. was a teenager. Okay. He wasn't engaged to Ariana. And I'm not excusing any behavior. But there are times, and, and I went through this even in my limited dating experiences in high school, where sometimes you're kind of interested in two girls and you don't quite know what to do about it. So I'm just going to let him pass on that. Okay. Did I treat that more seriously than you thought I was going to? <laughs> no, I just appreciated that you like had this sense of gravitas about you. No, I, I, I love the Robin series. I love, I, I was, very, I know you do. <laughs> I was very sad when Ariana was kind of written out of the book. Cause I really liked her as a character. Well, Donovan didn't like that I was accusing him of cheating, so he's got some email to send me. But uh, I just wondered, before you left, because I know you don't hang on for the mail, I wanted to ask your opinion on that. Okay. Final, I guess, controversial question here. Uh, Are you more Team Grape or Team Raisin? Ooh, I am Team Raisin. Uh, (gasps) Yay! you got to understand, one of my favorite cookies, my favorite cookie, as a matter of fact, outside of the sugar cookies... And the gingerbread cookies and the peanut butter cookies we make at Christmas. Because I make those with my wife. So those are always going to be my favorite. But I have always loved oatmeal raisin cookies. And I I like raisins in general. Rachel's laughing at you. Rachel's laughing at me. Uh, I love yogurt-covered raisins. Uh, I, I, I just like raisins. And I know some people think that they're like bugs or something. I don't know. The what? 
Your brother? Yeah. Her, her, her brother. Tom Panneries. Yeah, I know. This is Tom and I agree on a lot of things. This is one of the areas where t- I think Tom is dead wrong. Um, okay. Because I like grapes. Uh, and through Rachel, I've even gotten to like like the darker like red grapes. Uh, the ones that are almost purple even, but man, I love raisins. I, I just think, okay. I just think they're amazing. So, and I realized in listening to your show that I'm one of the few people that you talk to that likes raisins. So. Yeah. Well, someone didn't, yeah, Josh didn't, he, he felt like there was something underlying my question. So he sort of danced around, <laughs> but I think Ange, Ange is also team yeah. raisin. So. I, I, I think I think Tom needs to talk to somebody about whatever happened to him as a child with raisins. Uh, and I can understand maybe if you were a kid and you were given a cookie and because no one told you what was in the cookie, you assumed it was chocolate oh, chips and you bite it. It's sure. a raisin. And that's yeah. like, you know, betrayal. Mm-hmm. And you said, and as Rachel's brother did, apparently you start screaming bugs. Oh, dear. Um, but and I'm very specific with my oatmeal raisin cookies too. There are some that are too sweet. Uh, I like the ones that have more of an oatmeal flavor to it, but I think, and you let the raisin be the sweet part of it. Um, but I even like craisins. So there you go. Thank you for playing the game. Hashtag team raisin. Hashtag team raisin. There we go. (laughs) Well, finally, could you tell listeners where they can find and support you? Well, that uh, is very easy nowadays because I have everything oh. under one roof. It's the Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network, which can be found at fortressofbaileytude.com. There, the shows that are running mainly now are the Overlooked Dark Knight, where Andy Leyland and I are looking not only at Batman comics of the late 70s were in the middle of the Len Wein run, actually, which involved Batgirl in a few issues. Uh, You didn't like her very much, apparently. I didn't like her Batman, the the detective comic stories that she was part of. I just didn't really care for those too much. No, I mean, Len Wein didn't Mm. care for Barbara Gordon. Yeah, but he treated her pretty good in the one issue with the Phosphorus, with Dr. Phosphorus, which she was pretty cool. In fact, she kind of saves the day. And in, uh, so that we do that, we have two episodes a month. The first episode, we talk about those. And in the second episode, we are talking about the Adventures books, which were tied into the animated series from the 90s. And the reason why it's called The Overlooked Dark Knight is we feel that no one is really talking about these comics and that they deserve the recognition. Also, it all comes back to Superman. Uh, I kind of took the month of January off. But uh, it will be returning. It's my monthly the monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith because I put a lot of things in Catholic terms because I was raised Catholic. And there I just talk about um, all things Superman. So there'll be a regular episode this month of February. And then starting in March, I have an eight-part series that I'm going to be doing over the course of the year called Superman, Many Lives, Many Origins to celebrate his 80th uh, anniversary. Uh, from Crisis to Crisis will be coming back this year. I'm not going to say exactly when because it would ruin a joke. Uh, and I have a couple episodes of Views from the Long Box that I need to get out, one involving Shagalicious. <gasps> and also, there is a very irregular show which I call Fortress of Bailey Toot Showcase Presents, where I just talk with somebody about something. There's no set schedule or topic for that show. But you can find everything at fortressofbailey2.com. Okay, cool deal. Well, it is 
an honor as always oh, and a pleasure just to talk. It really is. Like I said, you know, you're not on nearly enough, but whenever you come on, it's just, it's a special. Well, thing. you know, Shag is, you know, your Grunkle stand. <laughs> Tom is your, um, God, his name escapes me. Dipper. Yeah, he's Dipper. I don't want to be the guy that talks like this because uh, I, th- I think I'm a little <laughs> smarter than that. Uh, so I'll be Grunkle Stan's twin brother. <laughs> okay. Sounds good to me. <laughs> the what? Stanford? Apparently I'm going to be Stanford. Well, yeah, it's a lot better than Zeus. You could be Zeus. You could be um, little me, though. <laughs> maybe I just, maybe I just want to be the pig. <laughs> oh, Waddles! Yes! Oh, man. No, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for letting me come out and just gush all over this this series. I uh, my pleasure. Yeah, it's a little stopgap until you finally covered on. Your yeah, head. and 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 it, and it, and it washes that Genesis right out of my hair. <laughs> thank you, South. Yeah, exactly. Oh man! Now it's time for some listener emails. Mail time. The first email I have is from Michael Ridge, and this was in regards to the Batgirl Robin flashback arc. He says, Selway Stella, the most disappointing thing about the flashbacks was that Dick was not wearing the classic Robin costume. I always loved it when she made fun of his pixie boots. Congratulations on getting through another year without being strangled by Donovan Morgan Grant. Still a loyal listener, despite the fact that you and Josh are terrible. Fly on Michael Ridge. And then I want to clarify, and I said, what do you mean? Do you, do you mean we're terrible to Donovan? And he said, poor, poor Don. He's such a nice lad, and his friends don't let go of any opportunity to rag on him. He's expecting, for heaven's sake, give him a break. And he's absolutely right, because we should be kinder to him, given the fact that Don is expecting a little dino baby. And, well... I guess you should be kinder to pregnant people. Then I had a comment from Donovan. And as you could tell, he didn't like the fact that I said Tim Drake was cheating on Ariana. So for BTO episode 152, he wrote in and he said regarding Robin number 56 through 58, I don't think Tim was cheating on Ariana at all, but your mileage may vary. Tim couldn't help his growing attraction to Stephanie, but attempted to curtail it by telling her she could never learn his identity. When Steph said she'd be fine with that, Tim's feelings went overboard and the immediate next scene is him trying to figure out how to break up with Ariana. If the next scene was him pondering how to maintain two different relationships at the same time, one with Ari as Tim, the other with Steph as Robin, then that's cheating. But if you recognize that you like someone else or don't care to be with the current significant other, it's your responsibility to that person to let them know ASAP. Tim wasn't sure about anything until Steph told him she'd be fine just knowing him as Robin. I think asking for more than what he did would be expecting more than anyone could reasonably react to. And someone else wrote in also, and it was Michael Ridge again about this, and he said, Salway Stella, is Tim cheating? Not really. Ariana and Tim ended their relationship the night she invited him over when she was alone in the house. They both knew that, and only a series of coincidences kept them from having their breakup talk. She realized that she needed to get help with dealing with the sexual aggressiveness of the older Kurt, question mark, and her father's murder. She hugged him in that issue because he was the kind of guy who wouldn't take advantage of her. They were able to stay friends even though her uncle wanted to make Tim into sausage. 
Nevertheless, Tim thought he needed to have the breakup talk because he was developing feelings for his cute and flirty work buddy. My mother used to say, quote, if you think you are doing something underhanded, you probably are, end quote. Tim's mother seems to have told him the same thing so that he really needed to have the talk with Ariana so that he could stop feeling guilty for cheating. You just said he was cheating! Just before listening to this episode, I was reading a World War II story of Justice Society men joining the military. Hawkman joined the Air Corps and was assigned in a civilian identity to protect a convoy leaving for a war zone. Shaira, who is sometimes Hawkwoman, was on the convoy and assigned to room with Lieutenant Diana Prince. After Hawkman stopped by to assure Shaira he would be looking out for her, Diana told Shaira off <laughs> for her flirting with Hawkman when she had already told her about her wonderful boyfriend, Carter. <laughs> Shaira laughed and said that they were the same guy. A lot of secret identities took a hit in that comic. Can the smell ecule employees sue? Yes. This was a work-related event, which makes our employer responsible for taking reasonable precautions to ensure their safety. Ah, good point. Harley's gas would have killed them if Batgirl couldn't have gotten the antidote. They had to spend hours locked away from family and friends that they might never see again. That's clearly a damaging situation, and their boss was the cause. I can see that some of his employees might need counseling. Some might develop symptoms of PTSD later. Some might even have had physical problems caused by that, quote, one bad day, you terrible, terrible human being, you. Uh, (laughs) They should have assurances that their cost of treatment will be covered even if they leave his employ. If he won't establish that assurance in a legal document, they might try to use a lawsuit to get him to do the right thing. As a defendant, Bradley Burr could say that an attack by Harley Quinn was not a reasonably foreseeable event that he should have prevented, but that would be something the jury would decide. This is Gotham, and supervillains are part of the city. Bradley did not seem to have any kind of security, so the question of reasonable precautions is certainly debatable. I'm not an attorney, but I did administrative work on workmen's compensation issues, which this would be. I enjoyed this as a single-issue story. It brought Barbara back to her supporting cast from the previous run, which is always good. Harley is an okay villain for Batgirl, though I prefer their interactions in the animated series. I wish Harley's hyenas, Bud and Lou, had been in the Santa suit (laughs) rather than the generic raccoons. Sir, raccoons are anything but generic. A great start to your eighth year of podcasting, Michael Ridge. Thank you, Michael, for writing in. I myself feel like Tim you know cheated i mean i'm looking at i think issue 56 or 57 and he kisses he clearly kisses steph before the next day when he calls ariana over ready to break up with her has sort of trouble and then she breaks up with him i think in that moment even though emotionally he's cut off ties from ariana they're still together so i think that uh he's cheated but you know don will probably say that uh i'm wrong and he'll be clack clack clacking his little hands over uh the keyboard once again thanks for writing in remember you can continue to do so even though i may disagree with you and also give me law advice and things like that because that was very much appreciative because i wasn't really sure about that suing so thank you very much michael remember write in backroll the oracle at gmail.com well i'm going to come back alone and when i do i'm going to review backroll and the birds of prey number 18 and backroll number 71 aka backroll 19 but first zias's radio hour featuring la vie and rose by edith piaf <laughs> Des yeux qui fondaient les miens, un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche, voilà le portrait sans retouche de l'homme auquel j'appartiens. 
Quand il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas, je vois la vie en start something new and try to keep up with it, but each time I review these new comics, I'm going to give you one or two favorite art panels. I feel like art is something that I don't necessarily talk about, and that's something I should do with the older comics as well. When I do single issues, I feel like sometimes with comic arcs, I think we we always inevitably talk about the art, but the newer issues, I feel like I've been ignoring it, and only, you know, if there's a problem, I talk about it, but I want to give credit where credit is due. So first up, we have Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 18, Eco Deadly. Writers Julian Shauna Benson, artist Marcio Takara, colorist Jordan Boyd. Tiger from Spiral approaches Huntress to investigate Zin Bast, a financier that Spiral believes has been supplying tech to black market arms dealers. Huntress agrees to attend an energy event in Paris since Batgirl will already be there as Barbara Gordon and bring along the birds as well. At the event, a man uses a treadmill to explain how energy could be harnessed. I mean, think Black Mirror, 5 million credits, I think, is the episode there. Barbara talks about Gordon Clean Energy, and Dr. Yenokita talks about his HAP-E, which withstands brownouts and EMPs. Meanwhile, Canary spills tea on Bast and schmoozes with him while getting the location of his hotel and planting a tracker. When 
Yenokita is presenting, a brownout occurs, and when the lights return, the doctor and his device are missing. The birds go to Bast's hotel and find the missing doctor, and the device has now been attached to Weather Wizard's wand. Bast creates a tornado within the hotel room and flees. The birds chase Bast to the Eiffel Tower while having a boat battle on the Seine. At the tower, Bass creates a hailstorm which causes some difficulties for the birds and their ascension. Canary uses her cry to knock Bast out, and the team, along with Yenokita, link arms and ground themselves so that the doctor can grab Weather Wizard's wand and destroy Hap E. And while I was writing this, I just realized what Hap E is. It means happy. Here, I just thought it was a super dumb name for a device, but. I got it. Tiger praises Huntress and offers her a position back with Spyro, which she refuses because she is already a part of a great team, but she does offer Yenokita to join. Next, everything comes full circle. So, I my I guess I have like three favorite art pieces. Uh, page six, the bottom middle. I just like the silhouette of the birds ascending the building. Feels very Batman 66-ish. Page 7, all the birds crashing through the window. I mean, splash pages are lovely. And then page 15, just so frenetic. You've got the hail, the wind. You've got the zoom in of the Eiffel. I think just really well done. This issue is interesting because it revisits the history of all three characters and brings into consideration their individual journeys and their journey as a team. Spiral and Tiger obviously are coming from, or not obviously, but if you hadn't been reading from Grayson, and so coming back and her history there and starting off as Matron, you've got Canary and her rock band being well-known, and she's picked out of the, the three birds a couple times, so revisiting that Brennan Fletcher-led book. And then, of course, you have Barbara Gordon and Backerel and Gordon Clean Energy. I do wonder, though, speaking of this last one, what role Babs really has with Gordon Clean Energy now, since in Backerel, she still seems to be estranged from it. But here, she's actually representing the company at a conference, whereas I would have thought Alicia would do that because she's been sort of the de facto leader. I also wonder how anyone could think and carry on a conversation with someone talking in her ear. I mean, it's like talking on the phone with someone and playing a video game while trying to pay attention to the cutscenes in the video game. And I have actually done this before. I was playing Assassin's Creed 2 and talking with someone, I think on Skype at the same time, and it doesn't really work. I like all the grapple hook use in this issue. I don't know why, but it's a lot of fun, and I think more attention is brought to it than normal, which is interesting because, I mean, we don't stop and talk about all the time Spidey shoots his webs, but here we have all the, you know, the grapple. (laughs) Basically, our attention is pulled towards it because of the art, and I think Huntress or Canary actually mentioned something about the the tool and how great it is, which is interesting. I continue to have concerns about the birds bringing civilians with them on their missions, but Elise has explained this time that he, the doctor, is the only one who can shut down the device. But even so, he just zaps it with lightning, which really any of the birds could have done with Weather Wizard's pole. And this is interesting with this black market deal with these weapons, getting the Weather Wizard wand and everything. And it would be an interesting idea for the Bensons to take and run with uh, continually and maybe little pieces here and there throughout stories, like different weapons and things start popping up and they've got to find the mystery of who's sort of at the head of this. Um, I mean, it may have been Bass, but I feel like maybe there could be someone else. It could be an interesting story to, to take on a run and just have wacky things like maybe Killer Moths, you know, <laughs> his little goop 
gun. I don't even know what it's called. Or um, Firefly's his flame gun. You know, different things like that would be. A lovely moment happens at the end where the team contemplates their past and wonders about their future as a team. But it's cemented in their relationship with a bright outlook in the future. Yeah, just really lovely. I, I think that this was an enjoyable one-shot. I assume that we're going somewhere else next issue. But like I said, it'd be nice if we picked up this black market thing and, and ran with it, little pieces here and there. But let's see. I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10 birds. Next up is Cold Snap Part 1, which is Batgirl 19, a.k.a. Batgirl 71. Writer Hope Larson, pencils Chris Wildgoose, inks Jose Marzan Jr., and colors Matt Lopez. The issue begins at 4.03 in the morning, with two donut shop owners being threatened by three thugs to pack up and get out of the neighborhood. Batgirl, feeling like the weather has suddenly turned cold, happens upon the scene and takes down the thugs. Come to find out they were just acting and decided to do a favor for one of the thugs' girlfriends who owns whole moly donuts but can't handle the competition Batgirl acts a little too saying it's you know oh just boy stuff of course you'll be okay but she actually calls the cops nonetheless later that morning Babs is downing coffee shut up you coffee lovers as she sits with Kadir who is being mysterious about his new job and Frankie who is worried about the sudden snowfall when there was no warning from the weather station the situation quickly escalates the next day with a sudden blizzard and everyone is lending a hand to help including Poison Ivy and Penguin since no warning was issued, Batgirl goes to the Burnside offices of the American Weather Administration to investigate. Using her Oracle skills, she discovers that their computer systems were infected by a worm, which intercepts data from the satellites and replaces it with fake data. She goes to check out the server room and finds a spur, like, you know, from a boot. Flashing back to the Batgirl annual of Supergirl, she remembers the group, Spur, stockmen pursuing an unbound republic, and goes to investigate. Traveling in her Batgirl mobile on skis, wherever she got that, she finds their clubhouse and discovers Spur just playing a board game. She, which the board game sort of reminds me of Settlers of Catan. She accuses them of being the cause of the AWA malfunction, but they declare that the government is doing a fine job of ruining itself, so they've given up their previous lives and have just been hanging out. A fight nevertheless ensues, and Batgirl comes out on top, but has to quickly race to Kadir, whose government lab is being robbed. Batgirl wonders if this was the plan all along, to distract her and rob the lab while she was away. Next, birds of a feather stick together. Favorite panel here would definitely be the page uh, 7 to 8 splash with the city covered in snow and the different activities going on throughout the page. You've got Frankie and Alicia getting in a snowball fight with some kids. There's electrical work and for whatever reason Batgirl's up there. And you've got the reporter reporting on the news and a weird upper class woman talking about her dog and the food it might need. Whatever. But it's a fun one nonetheless. I also like Batgirl's cold weather gear, including the jacket and the boots with the fur. I do wonder when she got that Batmobile, did Bruce give it to her? Did she make it? Did she use the funds from Gordon Clean Energy to make it, which might, that sounds a little corrupt. And does she keep it in the basement of Gordon Clean Energy? Something I would like to know. 
The beginning of this issue made me feel very uncomfortable. The way it is presented, it seems like it is a racially fueled hate crime. We have a black couple being harassed by three white dudes. They're told to go to Atlanta. And even though it's more of a donut hate crime and, of course, acting all along, I don't know that means all is forgiven and if I was perceiving it incorrectly. I think it was purposefully written that way, and I didn't like it. Not because those things don't happen, because they do, but the fact that the scene takes a U-turn and makes it seem like it should be no big deal makes it a big deal, if that makes sense. So just the opening sequence makes me feel very uncomfortable. I like the gradual weather changes that happen from the beginning of the issue and run throughout. This was better than just having a random blizzard. I do wonder whether Batgirl is always running around at 4 a.m., and does she always help electricians? Uh, It seems like maybe she's not grounded up there, so we're getting new details into Batgirl's life. What an odd way for the penguin to arrive by sled. And the mayor talking about the budget sounds pretty realistic to me, like basically people, well, real government issues, uh, you know, sending aid and things like that or using up aid from one natural disaster, uh, not having enough for a second one. I feel like that happens. I feel like it happened in House of Cards, too. The side characters, and in particular the guy at the AWA, are at times a little over the top. I mean, him in particular, talking about leaving the servers, what his life could have been like. People don't do this in real life. Super bizarre, and also, it's your job and your livelihood. I think someone at that type of place would be a little more serious. Is there some sort of government commentary going on in this issue, especially when Spurs says the government is doing a fine job of ruining itself? Is a comic the type of place for that? I feel like this isn't necessarily criticism. It's just making fun and making light. Criticism in my, uh, you know, I think criticism can, of course, be negative, but I think the best type of criticism is the fact that you sort of give a solution to it. But here, I think it's just making fun of it, just like the the late-night talk show hosts would maybe do. So I, I just wonder, is this the place for that sort of thing? But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not making light media is criticism. Let me know what you guys think about that. I do like that the tech explanation in regard to the worm absolutely makes sense. And it's tied to the real world. And this is something that I think Hope Larson has struggled with, or at least I've struggled with Hope Larson. So this, uh, I applaud her for this one. The spur scene, I think is odd and unnecessarily dramatic. How did Batgirl find them? Number one, they're not doing anything nefarious, so couldn't she have just knocked on the door and talked to them? Number two, and then we have an unnecessary fight, and then she just walks off. Number three, so really, what was the point of all that? Just to be a red herring, as she obviously points out at the end. I actually did really enjoy this issue. I seem to be at odds with the current reviewer at TBU on this. I don't know. I'm liking this. I, you know, it sets something up. It creates a mystery without it being impossible to understand from just this one part, which is something that I've been crying out for. Could I just pick this up and understand it most, you know, mostly? And yes, my main criticisms would just be the beginning and ending scenes and their purposes and executions. But overall, I think it's fun and I'm looking forward to it. So I'm going to give this an 8.5 out of 10 bats. Now over to Chris for his Batman Adventures review. Ah, that's like center seats for the opening night of the Black Panther movie and sneaking some leftover Valentine's Day candy inside with you. Am I right? Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Batfans. Welcome once again to the Batman Adventures review segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, 
Thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. Today, I'm reviewing Batman Adventures number 2. Batman Adventures number 2 was cover dated November 1992 and had a cover price of $1.25. The story is entitled Catwoman's Killer Caper and was written by Kelly Puckett, penciled by Ty Templeton, and inks by Rich Burchett. The story has been reprinted in Batman The Collected Adventures Volume 1, which was released in 1993, and The Batman Adventures Volume 1, which was released in 2015. Our story opens with Catwoman pulling off a nighttime jewelry store heist with guards in the next room. She is successful, of course, and gives a guard a scratch on the cheek for good measure. Catwoman then returns to her penthouse and unmasks, revealing her long blonde tresses and puts on a robe. Her doorbell rings and she gets a delivery, a large interactive monitor like the Penguin received in the last issue. And like the last issue, this monitor is from the Joker, who propositions Catwoman to steal the crown jewels in London, and while there, steal something for him, an object not yet revealed to the reader. A clue is left, Commissioner Gordon likes the bat signal, and we're off to London. A news broadcast tells us that the crown jewels are missing. Bruce Wayne arrives and surveys the crime scene under his role of a patron, where a worker explains the security system to him. Bruce returns later that night as Batman and finds Catwoman's footprints under an infrared light. He comments Catwoman is five foot five and 115 pounds based on her foot imprints. Surveying the scene more carefully, a smile crosses the Dark Knight's face. He's discovered something. The local media reports that the jewels have been taken, and in a hotel room, Selina Kyle laughs. Meanwhile, Batman captures two escaped prisoners, and he tells the media that he'll return the crown jewels. Selina hears the televised message, and she is infuriated. Catwoman returns to the scene of the crime, and Batman meets her there. We, the reader, then discover that Catwoman didn't take the crown jewels, but only hid them under a stand, and will return to get them when the security system was shut off. The next four pages treat us to a beautifully rendered chase sequence that climaxes on a clock tower. Catwoman slips off the ledge, and she clings onto the clock face, and shouts for Batman to help her. He pulls her up with a rope, and Catwoman sucker punches him. Though the crown is saved, Catwoman makes a clean getaway. Meanwhile, back in Gotham, the Joker receives a special delivery from London. The End I contend the use of Penguin in the first issue and Catwoman in the second was no coincidence, and were selected based on the characters being used in the then-current Batman Returns film. Further, Catwoman's blonde hair, she's traditionally been a brunette, was to coincide with Michelle Pfeiffer's look in the film. This did give readers an all-ages take on the Penguin and Catwoman, at least in appearance. Bat fans may recall something of a kerfuffle back then, as Batman Returns was a dark film, and not really a movie aimed for children. Yet at the time, there were McDonald's Happy Meal toys and cups tied into the film being distributed. Parents were said to have protested both Warner Brothers and McDonald's for promoting toys and cups based on the movie's look that wasn't appropriate for children. As for our story, there was some great artwork, and a perfect blend of pencils and inks here. As a reader, I can sometimes forget what can be conveyed with how a character's eyes look and how they're drawn. There were some great panels with Selena's eyes here, conveying happiness, anger, glee, and some sultry. There was a priceless panel where Batman figured out what Catwoman did, and he smiled to himself, and he said, Gotcha. 
For the writing, both our principals were in great voice. We see the cleverness and resourcefulness of Catwoman. Catwoman gets away in the end. I'm okay with that. The reader is left hanging with just what the Joker's plan is, and this is leaving me wanting to come back for more. This is a solid issue, and I'm going to give this 8.5 out of 10 bats. And now for my segment within a segment, Nightwatch, where I will take a quick peek at the Nightwing title, this time at issue numbers 37 and 38. In Nightwing 37, Nightwing and Lucy Weatherton share a hug on page 2, but I don't think there is anything to worry about. And in Nightwing number 38, there is no shipping. However, to sneak into a building, Dick does pose as a stripper at a bachelorette party, and there is a full page of his profile wearing shorts, dancing, and dollar bills stuffed in the waistband. I did overhear a woman look inside this comic book and say, that's hot, out loud. But to repeat, no shipping alert in Nightwing number 38. This concludes this segment of Nightwatch. A few comments. There's a Barbara Gordon Batgirl appearance along with the Birds of Prey in the current issue of Scooby-Doo Team-Up, which is issue number 34. Be on the lookout for that. Stella may be covering this, so I don't want to step on her toes, but my quick take on this is the Birds of Prey team up with Velma, Daphne, and Scooby to take on the mystery of some bird-related crimes. Spoiler, it's the Penguin. Solid artwork from Dario Brizuela. Batgirl is in her gray costume with her yellow gloves and boots and a solid black bat insignia. Shelly Fish writes Huntress with a bit of disapproving snark, and all the characters are in good voice. But it's not too deep of a mystery with no serious peril, as were some of the earlier stories in this overall fun series. Could have been better, but still very good, and there's something nice about the simplicity of the artwork. I'll give this 7 out of 10 bats. Aside from some quibbles, I did like the animated Gotham by Gaslight feature. I'll give this 8 out of 10 bats. I wouldn't mind a sequel in this setting. Check out Paul's review on the Batman Universe website, Donovan and Josh's audio commentary, and Bob's review of the original source material on the website as well. Speaking of the Batman Universe website, please consider lending your support to the website that provides excellent content of the Batman-related news, reviews, editorials, and other fine, fine podcasts. You can support the Batman Universe via Patreon by following a link on the Batman Universe homepage or by making a one-time donation of any amount you choose on a separate link on the homepage website. Thank you very much for your support. Shout out to Stella. Along with this show, check her out on the Batman Universe Comics Podcast and the Required Reading Podcast. Shout out to the Sutherlands. Check out the podcast Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, and their new one, Fantastic Fantasies. Shout out to Jerry Green, where you can find his written reviews of Batgirl, Batgirl Birds of Prey, and Harley and Ivy meet Betty and Veronica on the TBU website, and the Bat Books for Beginners podcast, where you can also find me. On the Bat Books for Beginners podcast, we'll review trade paperbacks featuring Batman and related characters. Please give it a try if you're not doing so already. Listeners, if you wish to contact me directly by email, you can reach me at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And you can find and follow me on Twitter, where my handle is at BTO and BatBooks. Thank you very much for your support. What are the stolen items that the Joker has obtained? What supporting character and future Bat villain makes an appearance in the next issue? Who will be the Joker's kidnap victims? And how will a captured Batman get out of being unmasked on live television? 
Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these jaunty, jovial, jocular, jolting, juicy, jigsaw jumbles will be unjammed next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. Now it's time, uh, my second go, of Anime Watchlist. Remember, with Anime Watchlist, I'm going to give you a TV show that's anime and a film that's anime. I'm going to tell you about it, and I'll also let you know if if it's something that's good for someone who is not well-versed in anime, would this be okay for them, or would it be more for an advanced viewer? So here we go. My TV show that I'm recommending is Snow White with the Red Hair in... Japanese, it is Akagami no Shiryuki Hime. Although her name means Snow White, Shiryuki is a cheerful red-haired girl living in the country of Tambarum, who works diligently as an apothecary at her herbal shop. Her life changes drastically when she is noticed by the silly prince of Tambarum, Prince Raji, who then tries to force her to become his concubine. Unwilling to give up her freedom, Shiryuki cuts her long red hair and escapes into the forest, where she is rescued from Raji by Zen Wistalia, the second prince of a neighboring country, and his two aides. Hoping to repay her debt to the trio someday, Shiryuki sets her sights on pursuing a career as the court herbalist in Zen's country, Clarinase. Akagami no Shiryuki Hime depicts Shiryuki's journey toward a new life at the royal palace of Clarinase, as well as Zen's endeavor to become a prince worthy of his title. As loyal friendships are forged and deadly enemies formed, Shiryuki and Zen slowly learn to support each other as they walk their own paths. I loved this. This was, uh, it was cute, it was heartwarming, and also, you know, at times serious, I would say, as well, and, and thought-provoking. Friendship Absolutely. Shipping, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite characters, of course, Shiryuki. I think definitely you, you've got to watch it for her. But one of Zen's aides is Kiki, and she's just so stoic, and she barely replies to anything. But when she does reply, it's like very cutting. I love, I, I just love her, uh, her sarcasm and her seriousness and everything. And you also have to really watch when she smiles. You're, you're like, wow, Kiki smiled. But no, this was great. I think that a beginner <laughs> a beginner i don't want it to sound patronizing but you, hopefully but by beginner i just mean like not a seasoned anime watcher maybe i should just say that not a seasoned anime watcher could definitely watch this it's not wacky or anything like that there's not like magic or anything happening it's uh it almost feels feudal or medieval in its time period certainly with the kings and everything and the herbalist and and stuff like that but it's very heartwarming nothing too scandalous happens except with the obviously she's kidnapped a couple times um but nothing you know no sexual assaults or anything like that but i absolutely recommend this i think it's only 26 episodes yes it's 26 episodes so definitely give a couple episodes a shot you'll you'll get a sense of who shiryuki is uh in the first couple episodes so that's my recommendation so non-seasoned anime viewers viewer approved i'll say i'm writing this in my show notes so i will remember my vocabulary for next time the next one is definitely not non-seasoned anime viewer approved it is paprika and it is a film that's about an hour and a half. The world of dreams can be an incredible window into the psyche, showing one's deepest desires, aspirations, and repressed memories. One hopeful tech lab has been developing the DC Mini, a device with the power to delve into the dreams of others. Atsuko Chiba and 
Kosaku Tokita have been tirelessly working to develop this technology with the hopes of using it to deeply explore patients' minds and help cure them of their psychological disorders. However, having access to the deepest corners of a person's mind comes with a tremendous responsibility. In the wrong hands, the DC Mini could be used as a form of psychological terrorism and cause mental breakdowns in the minds of targets. When this technology is stolen and people around them start acting strangely, Atsuko and Kosaku know they have a serious problem on their hands. Enlisting the help of Officer Konakawa, who has been receiving this experimental therapy, they search both the real and dream worlds for their mental terrorists. Paprika was director Satoshi Kon's last feature film before his death in 2010. It won several awards around the world, including the Tokyo Anime Award for Best Music in 2007 and the Newport Beach Film Festival for Best Animated Feature Film in 2007. If you have seen Perfect Blue and Tokyo Godfathers, this is、uh, the same director. So, the reason why I say it's not seasoned anime viewer approved is because, and, and I'm on the fence with this because it's very similar to and predates it, Inception. And it's amazing in that way. Just dream within a dream, trying to figure out what's reality and what is not. But just some of it's the animation is super wacky because it has to present these strange dreams. And so I think it might be where someone who is newer to anime might be very turned off because of how extreme and crazy it is. I, I recently watched it for the second time a couple days ago, and I feel like I still only 60%. Understand this film, but it is it's just really amazing. And I think Inception got some some slack with this, as well as Perfect Blue, that it may have been copying some of these things.、Uh, you might want to look that up, but there is some truth there potentially. I, well, I don't know if it's copying, but it's just it's similar with the dream within a dream, and this, of course, predates it. It is one of my favorite, Paprika is one of my favorite. Title sequences,、uh, not only with the music, which is currently my alarm clock on my cell phone to wake me up, but also with just Paprika herself flitting in and out of sort of the real world and screens and different things like that. I just suggest to give you a taste of what it is, just look up Paprika. I think probably intro would, would have it and just watch that minute and a half, two minute sequence. It's, it's amazing. It's like I said, one of my favorite things. I should also say, as I say, non,、uh, it actually, so seasoned, here we go, writing it in again, seasoned anime viewer approved. I should also say, as I'm doing this, this is my second time, so please forgive me. What I'm watching, if I'm watching Japanese or if I'm watching English dub, I actually, now I'm a bit of a snob, perhaps. I actually prefer the Japanese with English subtitles to many productions. Sometimes you can only find the dub, and that's okay. But if I do the Japanese first and then I try the dub, oftentimes I'm very turned off. Uran is the greatest example. I love the Uran Japanese, and then I go the dub, and I'm just not as excited for it. Maid Sama was, I watched the dub, that was what was available, and、uh, it was okay. I had to get used to the lead character, Misaki's voice, but in the end, I was okay with it. But just to say that, I watched Snow White with Red Hair, 
That was Japanese with English subtitles. And Paprika was also Japanese with English subtitles. And I'm actually not 100% sure that they have dubs. I think Snow White with the red hair does have a dub. But I don't know about Paprika. So just FYI about that. That might also turn some people off. Because I know some people don't like reading subtitles. So there you go. That is anime watch list for this episode. Now on to my literature recommendation. And farther down the rabbit hole I go, and I blame Tom Panneries for this. He gave me four, four Star Wars novels. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so here I have two of the four, and I'm currently working on the third, but I didn't want to recommend it yet. So, Aftermath. It's basically the Aftermath trilogy. Aftermath Star Wars by Chuck Wendig. As the Empire reels from its critical defeats at the Battle of Endor, the Rebel Alliance, now a fledgling new republic, presses its advantage by hunting down the enemy's scattered forces before they can regroup and retaliate. But above the remote planet Akiva, an ominous show of the enemy's strength is unfolding. Out on a lone reconnaissance mission, pilot Wedge Antilles watches Imperial Star Destroyers gather like birds of prey circling for a kill, but he's taken captive before he can report back to their new republic leaders. Meanwhile, on the planet's surface, former Rebel fighter Nora Wexley has returned to her native world, war-weary, ready to reunite with her estranged son and eager to build a new life in some distant place. But when Nora intercepts Wedge until his urgent distress call, she realizes her time as a freedom fighter is not yet over. What she doesn't know is just how close the enemy is or how decisive and dangerous her new mission will be. Determined to preserve the Empire's power, the surviving Imperial elite are converging on Akiva for a top-secret emergency summit to consolidate their forces and rally for a counter-strike. But they haven't reckoned on Nora and her newfound allies. Her technical genius son, a, Zabra, a Zabrak bounty hunter, and a reprobate Imperial defector who are prepared to do whatever they must to end the Empire's oppressive reign once and for all. And then I also read Aftermath, Life Debt, Star Wars, of course, Chuck Wendig, again. The Emperor is dead, and the remnants of his former empire are in retreat. As a new republic fights to restore a lasting peace of the galaxy, some dare to imagine new beginnings and new destinies. For Han Solo, that means settling his last outstanding debt by helping Chewbacca liberate the Wookiee's homeworld of Kashyyyk. Meanwhile, Nora Wexley and her band of Imperial hunters pursue Grand Admiral Ray Sloan and the Empire's remaining leadership across the galaxy. Even as more and more officers are brought to justice, Sloan continues to elude the New Republic and Nora fears Sloan may be searching for a means to save the crumbling Empire from oblivion. But the hunt for Sloan is cut short when Nora receives an urgent request from Princess Leia Organa. The attempt to liberate Kashyyyk has carried Han Solo, Chewbacca, and a band of smugglers into an ambush, resulting in Chewie's capture and Han's disappearance. Breaking away from their official mission and racing toward the Millennium Falcon's last known location, Nora and her crew prepare for any challenge that stands between them and their missing comrades, but they can't anticipate the true depth of the danger that awaits them or the ruthlessness of the enemy drawing them into his crosshairs. I've been enjoying this. Uh, it's weird because when I said that um, I was, <laughs> when I said that I was going to read this, people were basically saying it's not worth my time. But I've been enjoying this, and it bridges the gap between The Force Awakens and Return of the Jedi. I should have re- reversed that there. That was sort of history on proton. Um, Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens, and sets up just the fall of the Empire and the rise of what will be the First Order. So Ray Sloan is interesting because she popped up in the first book that I started reading, which was 
A New Dawn, and I just wanted to read it because uh, of Rebels that I was watching. And she pops up in Rebels, so there's that connection there. And the son of Nora Wexley, Temin, is also called Snap. And guess who that was? Greg Grunberg on The Force Awakens. So, whew. There are some connections. I start freaking out when I realize that. But I've been enjoying them on the third one, third of three. And, yeah, I've just been having fun. So, I mean, just give them a shot, you know. Don't necessarily listen to the naysayers. And finally, Echo, which is a graphic novel by Terry Moore. Julie is in the wrong place at the wrong time and becomes an unwilling participant in a web of murder and deceit that becomes nuclear. She is forced to find the maker of the atomic plasma that has rained down on her. As the plasma grows, she gets closer and closer to answers with the help of the original owner of the atomic suit she now wears. A lunatic with powers from the plasma is determined to take Julie and her suit for his own and destroys everything that stands in his way. Julie's mission becomes too hot for her to handle alone and along with Ivy and Dylan she must stop the makers of the suit from harnessing the plasma for their own destructive use terry moore is i i've been enjoying whatever he's been on uh with the exception as i suppose of (laughs) irony of irony spider-man loves mary jane i really liked rachel rising i really liked this and so i'm thinking you know i need to give strangers in paradise a shot i just love he is just a deft writer deft deftly writes these female characters great relationships between them hilarious conversations sometimes shipping of course his illustrations also are wonderful and just in a glance or a wide eye giving you every sense of what that character is going through using uh, one of my favorite things about anime is the blushes right some you know using blushes they're not the same as anime blushes but just having <laughs> having their faces sort of warm up is is one of my favorite things i don't know why i just love it it but echo was awesome i just raced through that it was great i really recommend it and it's all finished, so you can absolutely get the complete Echo. I think it was like 13 issues. That seems wrong. 15 to 18 issues, maybe? I should have looked that up. But Tom let me borrow that, and uh, I'm ever appreciative of that. He also gave me Rachel Rising, so he's just been... <laughs> he's he's my little enabler, I suppose. He's giving me all these things. So those are my literature recommendations. Hey, thanks for listening. I realize that this episode was longer and this is what you've come to expect. And I guess you can expect it for the next couple as well since I'll have a guest. But you know what? You're just going to have to deal with it. Take it in pieces. That's all you can do. Uh, yes, please send any questions or comments to backrolloracle at gmail.com. Big question I guess I posed this time was, are comics a place to critique and are... No, I guess because I think in a certain sense, I don't like that question because I think that anything can be a place to critique. But what I will ask is, do you think that Hope Larson was criticizing the government or poking fun of the government? Hmm. And are those things the same? Who knows? That's what my question is for this episode. So anyways, write in backrolloracle at gmail.com. You can find the show on Google Play and Stitcher now if you're not fans of the iTunes. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backrolloracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows?
Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. <sighs> I love a happy ending, don't you? So I felt like in the in the minds of the public Is your dog upset about what you're talking about? Uh, no, my dog's upset because Rachel had to come into the room and the other dog came in with her. So oh, I didn't real maybe I did realize this that there was hostility between your animals. Uh, Gracie gets very protective in my stomach and when she's in my lap because oh, she wants to be there. She gets territorial, oh, I guess okay. is the best way to say that. Okay. So I'm I'm gonna kind of wait for Rachel to it's get like finished electric, doing what she's Superman doing. Came in the room or something. Yeah. Get in here, in bathroom, go. I, I think she did the exact opposite of what you asked her to do. Thank you, Captain My next adventure will be when you get out. I know you will. Hold on a second. Shag's asking us a question. Asking us a question? I, oh, you, that's because... Yes, sent us a text. Well, what was his question? Yeah. That I didn't actually use. Yes, I put that... <laughs> I put it on Twitter. I said, does Michael Bailey reveal his true identity? Find out. So he's probably nervous. Yeah, I I, I don't want it. I'm sorry to create editing for you. (laughs) If you edit this at all. Not well. Who knows? Your name is actually Horatio. (laughs) Yes. And that you were the inspiration for... C.S. on Miami. It was a joke. Promise. Mr. Parker. It's Hardy again. Well, at least we can always count on you. Sorry, Miss Ritter. won't happen again, I promise. Don't make promises you can't keep, Mr. Parker. Yeah, but those are the best kind. Okay, class, open your books. Let's begin on page one. 